Hello, and welcome to another edition of Oddity Prodigy Presents Scary Stuff, the Horror Podcast. So, this week, inspired by the appropriately titled Underwater, starring Kristen Stewart, we decided to take a deep dive into the depths of undersea horror. Back in 1989, there was a rising tide of movies set beneath the waves, most prominently James Cameron's Oscar-winning The Abyss. But in its wake, there were two lesser-known horror pictures, Leviathan and Deep Star Six. We use those as our springboard to jump into the deep end of movies that use the depths to inspire terror. So come get wet with us as we make like Sebastian and head under the sea. All right, and... Here we are for another edition of Scary Stuff. My name is Jake, and I'm here with Nick. How y'all doing today? And Eric. I thought for sure for the underwater episode, you'd introduce us. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> I only speak my, my home tongue uh, with family. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I thought about finding some sort of filter so we sounded underwater, or we could be like the uh, the theme song, which was Leviathan or Deep Star Six, that had the, the whale song incorporated. Leviathan had, yeah. <laughs> So it could be as, as, as scary as not possible. <laughs> All right. So as we said in the intro, we're here to talk about underwater horror movies. This was inspired by the Kristen Stewart film Underwater, which just came and went. And I'm sure very few of you saw it based on its box office returns. Which I'm actually very disappointed by. Because like the trailer alone, like I watched the trailer, I'm like, I'm in for this. This is my bag. I, I mean, maybe just because I like underwater creatures. Maybe I'm just unique that way. But I thought the trailer sold itself. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was sold on the trailer because I like underwater horror movies, particularly the shark division. But we're we're talking about the non-shark division of underwater <laughs> horror movies today. Although there's a couple of sharks in. Uh, we Leviathan. have shark cameos, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was. Uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we we've got a few movies we want to cover today for this podcast. We watched, as I mentioned in the intro, we watched Underwater, we watched Deep Star Six, we watched Leviathan. Then we skipped ahead a few years to watch the Remo Williams vehicle, Deep Rising, and then we jumped... <laughs> Not Remo Williams. Oh, Treat, Treat Williams. Williams. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the third time you've done that. Oh, no. I wrote it down the other day when I was <laughs> when I was messing around with intros, and I realized I wrote Remo Williams. Um, the legend was, continues. Look, I was a Remo Williams fan as a kid. I've never seen the movie, but I like the books. The books were the you destroyers. Never seen I've never seen Remo Williams. All right, we need to make a whole new podcast just to handle this. All right? <laughs> but but I've, read, I've read a bunch of the Destroyer books, so whenever I see Treat Williams, I thought Treat Williams was in Remo Williams. Nope. Yeah, no, he's not. I looked it up. Yeah, he's in Hair, and he's in Dead Heat, which... I love, but then again, I love some serious schlock. Well, he he was also on what was it, Orange County or one of those shows, wasn't he? One Tree Hill, Two Tree Hill. Oh, uh, there was a what, Tree Hill. Some yeah, some nonsense it's that I not Orange watch. County. That was uh, that was the other dad type. He's on Frankie Gracie right now. I can't who, remember his name. Who, there's a lot of dad Mr. types Eyebrows. we're going to talk about. It with sexy dad types in this particular podcast. <laughs> it's all um, one. But yeah, so we're we're going to jump ahead to the Barry Levinson film, The Bay. Which is a little different from the other ones. It doesn't take place mostly underwater. It takes mostly place in a vacation town, but it still ties in pretty interestingly. Yeah, and it's going to make a nice transitional episode as we literally go from land in the previous episode out to sea. Mm-hmm. And then also, this is a found footage movie. So coming off of paranormal activity. So kind of help us ease our way, dip a toe in the water to use it. Also, and not you know, being not true to the form for this episode, they are underwater creatures for the most part. They are. Yeah, so it still fits. This episode's got a little bit from all of our wheelhouses. We've got a found footage movie for me. 
we've got schlocky horror for Nick. Yeah. And for Eric, we've got little little bit of everything that you like. Okay. Uh, I was like, well, this is going to be interesting. What's Jake about the bus now? <laughs> well, Kristen Stewart in a picture guy. There is that, yeah. <laughs> Eric likes crabs, so that's what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, so where do we want to start? I think it's important to mention the fact that this is actually a Barry Levinson film. The guy who brought us uh, Rain Man and Toys, of all things. Toys? Toys. Toys is the second one you Toys mentioned? is the one I go to, absolutely. Wow, Rain Man and Toys. Well, where would you have gone? Jake would have gone Sleepers. Absolutely, oh, yeah, I would have yeah, gone Sleepers. Yeah. That's the only important one as far as I'm concerned, because Rain Man does not hold up. <laughs> and it's it's got a little bit of a nautical theme. There's rain. It's, uh, <laughs> we also did Sphere, too, so his other genre entry is also underwater. Yeah, which we didn't we didn't cover this time. We didn't do Sphere, which was another one of the, it was it was yeah. kind of in the a few years later than the the big trinity of 1989 underwater movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but knowing what the actual personally knowing what the actual villain of Sphere is, I don't think it would be appropriate for this podcast. I've never seen it. So, The Bay came out what 2014? 2012. 2012. Yeah, I'm not good with the numbers. I know it's set in 2009, but yeah, it came out 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's set with Tuesday, which is actually kind of one of the funnier goofs because I was, I was curious about some of the stuff they use in FaceTime. They mentioned it, but that didn't come out until 2010. So, haha. <laughs> <laughs> so, The Bay is a pretty interesting found footage movie. The, the overall plot is that there's this vacation town near a chicken shit plant that it's is like, right. It's like, yeah, it's like an idyllic town. It's like the way yeah. it's described. It's just it's perfect people, lovely location, everything's great. Claridge, Maryland. Yep. Yeah. And and they really harp on that. It's a 4th of July. So it's, it's all this, like, they really lean into this is the Americana of Americanas. Now, I don't know about you. And hey, he's even got a cop shooting. So, you know, it really <laughs> is America. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it actually resonated a bit more with me because it's the Chesapeake Bay. It's like very local. And they mentioned Wilmington and they mentioned a number of local locations. Yeah, except it was Wilmington, North Carolina. Was that what they were coming from? The Chesapeake Bay is not a nine-hour boat drive no, from Wilmington to Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> it felt very local in so much as it was the East Coast. I got it backwards. <laughs> That's okay. I got to call you out on, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a face made at me right now. <laughs> but it, it it is local, and you're right. It's it's the Chesapeake Bay. It's a place where we've all been and we've all seen, not necessarily Claret. What was it? Claritin? Claridge. Claret. Not Claritin. But if you want to sponsor us. <laughs> it's it's odd. It came about because a uh, few people approached Barry Levinson to make a documentary about the the pollution and the the destruction in the bay, and he essentially said, "Yeah, nobody's going to watch this, so we're going to make a movie instead," which nobody watched. So I don't know if that really worked. <laughs> he was down for a documentary. Someone had essentially beat him to it, and he was like, "All right, well, this has already been covered, so let's go at it from a different angle." Yeah, and I think it's the only found footage movie he's ever done. To my knowledge, yeah, and it was he'd done genre east stuff before with Sphere, but this was certainly skewed much more into the horror genre than anything else he'd done. Yeah, it's it's definitely a horror movie, or at least it's got all the horror tropes. It's got you know scary monsters eating people in the water. It's got you know Jaws like scenes, but it, at the same time, it it's it's ecological horror for sure, which is not a big genre unless you count you know like the smog monster from Godzilla or. Uh, the Bong Joon-hoon one. Um, oh, the, the host. host. The host. Which I thought about for this, but yeah. <laughs> no, but you're right, because it, it, it almost feels like the movie is pushing less on the critters as the villains so much as the organizations that let this happen. You know, the abuse of 
hormones, the chicken feed, the the mayor's uh, penchant to ignore complaints and, and warnings. Yeah, the mayor pulled a full on jaws on this one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You no, know, it's, it's a, on every level, except a little bit for the CDC. Almost every level of bureaucracy is just not helping these people and not reaching out to them, other than the one doctor at the hospital. Yeah, and Levinson said in interviews, this is the first horror movie where it's basically ninety percent actual content, where it's mm-hmm. only a, the gist of what this is based on, and everything from actually the opening is legitimate. So they just kind of ex- you know extrapolated a little bit. Yeah, weren't some of those uh, news? reports actual footage everything from the the opening so there's a a title bumper at the opening that says all of this was reported what you're about to see is not and all the bits before that bumper are in fact legitimate about you know floods of dead fish in the ocean i forget all the other stuff that's in there but all these weird incidents around the bay area yeah that's all legit and a lot of the the comments they make like um the bay being 40 percent dead yep yep is true the fact that there's a there's a throwaway line in it about how if this was a hundred years ago, it would have been all clams in there, and oh, there was nothing. Oh, yeah, and that, that's true as well. Even the the monster in it is real. Yes, yes, fact, the isopods. Yep. So related to that, had you guys seen this before? Yes, the, the movie or the, the movie? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> both. I've seen both. Yeah, I hadn't seen this before. So when I picked up the DVD copy of it, I never really looked at the poster. And the, so the DVD of it is kind of this X-ray image of a person's head, and so you see like the outline of the skull and whatnot. And you could see something lodged in the mouth area. And I thought, not knowing what the actual premise of the movie was, I said, oh, man, if this is about those underwater parasites that eat out the tongue, this is going to be so gross. It's 100% about that. And it was. It's an incredibly gross film. Oh, it's so gooey. I I had seen it before. And one of the the things going back to see it, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to rewatching it because, you know, the first time a lot of that gore was kind of like shock value. You're like, oh, that's disgusting. You sort of move on mentally. You don't know what's coming. You're like, you're on edge waiting to see what's going to happen. Yeah, and the second time when you watch it, it's like, oh, yeah, this. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the awful thing happens. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, and it's it's funny is that none of it was it was filmed in the Bay, if you look that up. It was all filmed in North Carolina and South Carolina. Oh, was it Carolina? Okay, yeah. yeah. Which I thought was kind of funny, since it's all the, the footage is real of the Bay, and all the filming is not. But that said, the, the, the overall story of the movie is pretty good. I think it's a tad unrealistic. But a lot of found footage stuff is because the, the the plot follows predominantly a young woman reporter who's on a fluff assignment about how great this town is on Fourth of July, and then kind of follows as this disease breaks out and yeah, it follows her, the head doctor of the hospital, a vacation couple on a ship, and right. a girl with her with her phone. Is the and, 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 and the oceanographers too. and the oceanographers yeah. yeah so it's like multiple perspectives but a lot of it's her yeah. and, but the oceanographers are dead before the movie even starts and you, <laughs> you know you're in, you're in problem when the first thing in a movie is dead scientists <laughs> uh, that's that's never a good sign but yeah so the there's this this reporter who kind of lucks into this lucks into this story and then as you said it's the the vacationing couple and the vacationing couple is kind of the hardest part for me oh yeah. But it's oh. also, they have the most significant and pronounced too stupid to live moment in the entire film. So, I mean, there's going to be spoilers. Look, you're not going to watch it. Whatever. It tracks them coming up to visit the, the woman. It's a couple and a very small baby. And it tracks them on a boat sailing up to visit their grandparents in, in this town. And when they get there, everybody's, you know, dead. It's, it's post this apocalypse. So they get off the boat. They're walking down the docks. And there is a dead messed up body on the docks. Yep. And they're like, huh, well, let's see what this is about and keep going. I'm like, uh, yep. No, 
You're I, done. I, I think you missed it because one of the problems were is they were out of gas. They needed they needed someone to help get them out of there. No, no, no. I got that. They were out of gas. They were on the dock. There were other boats. There's a dead body on the dock, <laughs> and you walk forward. You see other dead bodies lying around on Main Street, and your thought is, "Well, let's let's go in here. Maybe there's a phone working." And then you call, try the phone. And they call the cops, and they still don't leave. They asked for it. They although she survives. Yeah, she survives. I mean, they basically hold up there because they think it's safe. They can stay there and hidden, and nobody bothers them there. So for that reason, they're right. They call for help on the laptop, and then when the reveal happens, she takes off effectively. Well, let me let me ask you this: How many dead bodies do you need to see before you get back on your boat? If my boat is not going anywhere, there, there's the there's rowboats around. There's fifty boats right there. You have a very small child. How many dead bodies do you need to see before Ro- you leave? Rowboat in the dark is not the best of ideas. And the town full of dead bodies is? Calling the police is by the first thing. They, they tried and couldn't. But then and then she, they, but they and didn't then leave. <laughs> she left. As, they got in, found a phone. Tried it. And then they walked around that, that antique store for a while. They're trying to figure out what to do. No, they're, what they did in the antique store was they called their friend on the computer and asked him to call the police for them since they couldn't there. All right. So here's my answer. And I'm going to ask you, Eric. My answer is one dead body. <laughs> Eric, how many dead bodies? Please I'm just still stuck on thinking how long until you ask me to do underwater voice on the two stupid electrons. Where I need to make Shannon play with filters on this um, What I keep thinking during that discussion of this couple is what's interesting to me about it is I read an interview with one of the writers on this guy named Michael Wallach. This was the first thing he'd written and it's, it's interesting you talk about this couple. So in, in the actual film, they're kind of on the sidelines for most of it. And then they kind of come in and they become the primary angle for like the last 20 minutes. Yes. Yeah. But originally the script was built around them. Really? So yeah, originally they were the basically the first through line for it was it was going to be about this couple that comes into this town. Everybody's dead. And now they're trying to piece together what happened. Okay. So that was kind of the, the original spine of the movie. And then it kind of changed later into this faux documentary that we've got now. Yeah, and I, I kind of like the, the faux documentary feel of it. So one of the, the conceits is that nobody knows what happened in this town. And through the, the, the power of govleaks.org, <laughs> the reporter is getting the word out finally as she's talking to somebody off camera that you can't see. And she's that's interviewing her and piecing together all this footage that they, they got, you know, that had never been released. One amusing note from the bit where she's being interviewed. So the actress who plays uh, the journalist... The actress's name is Kether Donahue, which I guess she's from a TV show on FX, You're the Worst. Yep. Which I haven't seen, but in, in looking her up, fantastic. she has a line in this where she's talking to the unseen voice about the documentary, and she has a line where she flubs a line or something, and, and she retorts with, you know, maybe you should have gotten a voice actor, which was really funny because she is a voice actress. Yep. <laughs> in yep. looking her up, I was like, oh my gosh, she was a voice actress in a ton of stuff, uh, you know, a ton of anime from like the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was good in this, I thought. Yeah. I, I enjoyed her. I, I, I enjoy it. Like, everybody puts on a pretty decent performance. And it's it's interesting in terms of found footage because it's a lot of it is from different camera sources. So, like, there's cop dash cams, there's handheld cams, you know, there's news footage. So, it's a lot of things interspersed. And one of the things that they do is they keep interspersing older footage that you've seen before in different spots to, to affect. So, like, they keep going back to somebody commenting about how much chicken shit is in the bay. You know, and they, they kind of imply that, you know, agricultural waste is sort of what's... Re- agricultural waste from super steroid chicken. Steroids in the chicken yeah. shit. So these isopods are on the juice. 
Yeah. And nuclear runoff, too, apparently. They only drop it once, but they say it's some radiated material got into the bay as well. So basically, it's it's a very heavy-handed film. And it, it probably should be because, you know, the bay is messed up and, you know, there's a lot of ecological damage there. But the movie really harps on it. And as it progresses, it starts to get more and more gross. And there's, there's, there's things in it that I, I didn't like that knocked me out of out of the movie like there's a scene towards the end where one of the cops has uh, is infected and then when they infected they break out with these boils and a lot of people are real too casual when they're covered in this stuff <laughs> they're like yes i am covered in boils absolutely this is bad i'm like yeah if i was covered in boils man you would need to sedate my ass <laughs> you are uh, very delicate i am i am delicate there's a scene towards the end where the chief of police is driving around he sees one of his cops and he gets out of the car and says what's going on and the cop shoots him Basically to say, you know, nobody should have to die like this, and then the cop shoots himself. That annoyed me, because he shouldn't have shot the chief. I understand what the, the implication was, you know, I'm, I'm saving you from this. But man, find out if he's sick first. I think you're thinking way too rational. I think he was panicking and just not all there. Well, yeah, for sure, that's, that's the implication. I just, it knocked me out of the film, because it seemed like one of those things that's just like, eh, I don't know. He's still a cop. I don't think he's going to mercy kill his boss, who seems fine. I mean, he's seen horrific things happening because it's unfortunately it's not just these people are dying; it's they're dying in these terribly gruesome ways. I mean, um, it becomes clear as the movie progresses that one of the main things these things like to do are eat tongues. So you have all these people kind of just mumbling, throat talking as best they can, begging for mercy killings and or help. And it's it's a shell shocking scenario. Oh no, I get it. I'm just saying it didn't. That didn't feel very natural to me, especially since he didn't also go and kill the mayor in the car, who then went and had an accident and killed himself. Well, because he's not consciously on a murder spree, he is reacting. Like that's the only reason he shot the sheriff is the sheriff got out of the car. If the sheriff didn't get out of the car, he probably just shot himself. That been it. But he didn't mm. shoot the deputy. <laughs> no, he eventually <laughs> shot the deputy, which was himself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but see, that, that's my problem with it, is, is, is there's a lot of stuff in that you kind of have to rationalize like that. Where rather than, you know, it just feels like you don't have to think about it happening because it just sort of happened. I think you kind of have to be in a position to rationalize it because if they just over heavy handed go, oh, by the way, I'm delirious. Now I'm going to shoot myself. I think that would not work. What about this movie wasn't heavy handed? For government policy? Yes. (laughs) For mental state? I felt that was not necessary. I I was thinking about it a bit in the, the scene where the towards the beginning, the first person you really see with the boils is a lady walking down the street shouting, somebody help me, somebody help me, and everybody's just kind of looking at her. Yep. And I don't think that's necessarily unrealistic, because, you know, when you see somebody covered in boils, your first instinct is probably not, well, let's go touch them. But, you know, when they spend, and it's it's probably was there to make a point, because they spend so much time talking about how this is the ideal, like, wonderful place where everybody likes you, and here's the somebody they're not going to help uh, until she kind of thinks she collapses. I forget how that scene it's ends. Somebody else's problem. Dude. Yeah, it just kind of <laughs> cuts. We don't really see what happens yeah. to her. The footage just kind of cuts out. Yeah. And I, I, I think one of my favorite things about the film is the, the reaction of the CDC doctors and just how blank oh, they are. Man. It just yeah. cracks me up consistently. Because they're like, you know, this the one doctor that's talking to him is panicking. He's like, look, this is... And they're like, huh, well, that's interesting. Well, why, why don't we give you a call back in a little bit? Have I think a good day, it's, Bob. It, it's interesting because it, I think it's their job to be the ones who stay focused and calm to help these people through. They can't, they can't visibly lose their shit in front of their people are trying to help because then it's just panic. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. just it, it comes off to a certain comedic effect. I do this. love that when they when they when that breaks down though. 
So it's clear over the course of the movie, they're getting a little bit more and more concerned. And it's kind of coming through in their mannerisms. And they finally talk to Homeland Security. And he's just like, really? Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's just like, you can just see behind his eyes, like all his training is keeping him calm. But all he wants to do is explode at this guy <laughs> and like reach through the screen and throttle him. Yeah, that was one of the better performances, I thought. It was just a brief <laughs> one by the Homeland Security guy. In terms of the movie being overdone, for me, it was a lot of, the movie came very close and just went a little too far on a lot of things. We talked about, like, the bit with the um, the deputy where he goes into, where we see the deputy later on and he's been traumatized by this incident. The incident in question is one of the better done sequences in the movie, which is where he goes into a house and we have audio only. So there's no yeah. video at that point. So they're just playing audio over the still image of a house and they do that thing where they superimpose text like in a documentary as far as what the audio says which is really creepy conceptually in terms of you know barely being able to make out some of the audio but they just go too far in having them like have this really descriptive audio where he's like look it's coming out of their mouths and blah 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 and it's like it's like, odd oh, can you just we mentioned before with paranormal activity a lot of the things for found footage is just hinges on the performances being organic and real at least to me and this one, there was some of that, but some of the performances was like, ah, you're just taking it a hair too far. And then the other thing in terms of heavy handedness that kind of murdered the film for me at a couple points is the score. So now, no, it's a dramatic score. <laughs> it is. And, and the composer is a guy named Marcelo Zarvos. He's done some very good scores. He did the score for Sin Nombre, which was Kira Fukunaga's breakthrough film. He did the score for Brooklyn's Finest. So not a bad composer, but it's just having a score. For this faux documentary format that they have, some semblance of a score kind of makes sense having something. But when it's it's played so strong, and it's particularly when it's bit where it's just like heavy percussion and all this stuff, it's like, oh, again, just you just dial it back just a smidge for your own benefit. Yeah, because mostly in documentaries, when you get the scores, when the uh, narrator is talking, otherwise it's just the footage. Yeah. So, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, but a lot of the movie, that, that fits with the rest of the movie just being so heavy handed. One of the things, like, there's a scene where they amputate a leg. That's so gooey. It's so gooey, but then the person's just kind of casually carrying the leg around the room. And I'm like, that's not how that works, I bet you. You know, I I understand they're kind of triaging, but it looks fake. You don't think they toss it through a little basketball hoop like that bit in The Simpsons where they they toss the hamster in? (laughs) This is the hardest part of my job. Splat. Swish. It's good. (laughs) Nothing but net. But, it, you know, so in terms of, like, sort of underwater horror, I think those scenes are pretty effective. Every time somebody jumps in the water, a lot of times what happens, you don't really know what's going on, and then they get chewed up like it's piranha. Only when they're actually in the bay. Um, yeah. Part of the problem with this situation for them is the desalination plant. So it's grade D minus, it's barely passable, it's clearly another one of those poorly done bureaucracy level projects that happen, but people in charge are the worst but what's happening is is that while the plant can filter out the salt from the bay and it can filter out the larger creatures all the larvae are what get through which is why all the swimming pools and all the dunk tanks and all the fountains everything is every water source in the town is a death trap and in terms of the bureaucracy and the government response do either of you know what the co-writer mike wallach did for his job no he, he worked for the State Department. Oh, um, so this is from an interview he did with StandbyForMindControl.com. It was back in 2012 when the movie came out. So this is just hold, hold, hold up. StandbyForMindControl.com? <laughs> you know, looking at that in my notes now and reading that out loud, it's like, you know, I probably should have had other links on that site to see what it was. 
That it's link like, sounds like poison. <laughs> <laughs> he gives an interview to this site and he mentions, when I was at state, I was doing political polling in the Middle East, which the government essentially used to manipulate people over there, and I felt like shit. My girlfriend was calling me Lenny Reifenstahl's research assistant. I was going to meetings like exactly the meetings you would imagine, where guys from Exxon would come in and talk to the guys running the Iraq war about the, quote, excellent tactics they used to distract people about the Valdez spill. Literally. It was mind-blowing. So I had to get out of there and pretty much lose my soul and my girlfriend. Meanwhile, I was spending my lunch break scribbling out movie ideas every day at idiotic places like Quiznos and McDonald's. So having the real life... Once again, Quiznos, McDonald's, we are available for sponsorships. <laughs> <laughs> There's a segment in this where someone's about to bite into a delicious meatball sub from Quiznos and an isopod <laughs> and skirts out. And the guy just brushes it off and bites in. <laughs> Even a roided out isopod won't ruin the delicious taste of Quiznos. <laughs> Subway, eat fresh. <laughs> just like isopods on the seafloor, Jimmy John's has freaky fast. <laughs> Look, I'm willing to debase myself like Community Season 5 and just have a character named Subway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that it's this movie benefits a lot by virtue of its of its premise in two ways. One is it being based on like we mentioned some the gist of it is based in real life incidents and just kind of taking those to the nth degree. And then the other one is the crux of the idea of these isopods, which are a real thing. They're so terrifying. Yeah, and it's su just such an inherently unnerving <laughs> image that this movie benefits a lot just based on Reality. having those as, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it really goes out of its way to be gross between the boils and the isopods, and it really hammers home that the larva is in everything. And it tells you that like six times in case you forgot, you didn't understand the first time. Mm -hmm. Oh, the larva gets in things. Guys, the larva gets in things. It's the larva. You know, I'm surprised there wasn't a billboard in the town that said, hey, it's the larva. Well, the biggest problem with the larva, they point out, is because with a combination of the hormones, you know, the purpose of the hormones for the chickens is to cause them to mature within, like, two weeks versus several months. Real thing, too. Real thing. Disturbing. And so what happens with the larva and the isopods is, is that they can go from a small, really can't see it, larva to a full-grown little nasty beastie in eight hours. So the entire town in one day is, is just destroyed. Yeah, and they, they say there's, there's I don't know, something like 20 survivors or some X number of survivors, which is another kind of problem I had with the movie with this being, you know, nobody really knows what happened. I'm like, if like 40 people survived and one of them was a newscaster and you were broadcasting this stuff live, yeah, people know what happened. You don't need well, govleaks.org to get the news out but I, I understand the points of it being a cover-up and all that and that's sort of you know the bookend of the film it was just one of those things i'm like yeah this works better when you're talking about tiny villages somewhere else this is on chesapeake bay mm. you know which is a big highway town so can you talk real quick about my favorite scene in the whole movie which yeah. is by far the uh the miscrustacean well, I guess Miss Crustacean is present for it, but it, it's the crab eating competition. So it opens yep. with oh. us meeting uh, uh. Miss Crustacean, who's in this uh, you know dress, and she has this ornate, bedazzled crab plastered to her forehead, a sash across her chest. Yep, and she's there for this crab eating competition, in which during which a lot of the contestants start getting sick and start throwing up. So I for had this some bad Stand by Me flashback <laughs> on that scene for this two minute window, this movie was the finale of Drop Dead Gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> which ends the exact same way and i was so excited <laughs> i was like ah, that's the best yeah i it was just gross this movie is so gross it it's is disgusting watching it again was tough <laughs> there's also like 47 movies called the bay 
So when we talked about it, like, am I, this is the right one, right? The, the Barry Levinson <laughs> one? Because I could watch like three of these other ones just in case. Can I say how weird it is? We were talking about Barry Levinson, how weird it is seeing him do a horror movie and genre movie like this. It's very strange to sit down and watch a Barry Levinson movie, and the first thing you see is the red squeaking grinding gears that Lionsgate uses to yes, open the yes. Saw movies. I know Lionsgate uses that for all of their horror films, but yes. I very much associate it with the Saw franchise. Absolutely. I like, did I did I get the wrong movie? <laughs> so that's that's the Bay. I mean, it's it's a it's worth watching if you like footage and you want to get mad about things. Just don't. I just don't think it's that bad. Well, I mean, I'm mad about like chicken. Oh, shit. Sure, about the government. Not, not mad about the movie itself. Fair enough, fair enough. The movie didn't make me mad. It's, no. Well, we'll save that for other films. But, uh, <laughs> not the sort of horror movie you would turn to. So, since a lot of people turn to horror movies as like a distraction, it was like the real world is depressing. So, I'm going to turn to this other kind of horrific and depressing that I have some semblance of control over. Nope. This one would not be that because yeah, there's too much bleed over. Yeah. Plus, it's it's just very gross. Like I, I look, I have a weak stomach when it comes to horror <laughs> movies, and this 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 did for me pretty good. Let me tell you. Yeah. I like it. I think it could have been great. I think it has some missteps and goes too far, but it benefits a lot just from being. Icky and gross. So, yep. yeah, I, I certainly enjoyed it the first. I enjoyed it more the first time than the second time, just because I knew all the gross bits were coming, and it's like, uh, I don't want to watch this. And then I watched it. Like I didn't want to watch that. Ugh. But, but now we'll transition to something else that's equally realistic, <laughs> deep rising, <laughs> and and perhaps just a little bit more subtle. I I just want to start off real quick by saying that Deep Rising was uh, put out by Hollywood Pictures, making this officially a Disney film. Hey. <laughs> oh man, I didn't even see if it was on Disney Plus. <laughs> that makes Franka Jansen a Disney princess. Yay! Yay! <laughs> That's acceptable. This see, this is just the, the Little Mermaid two. This is Ursula's Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please take the finale of this when it's holding up Treat Williams' is poor unfortunate soul. <laughs> <laughs> so I hadn't seen this one, and I also. When I sat down to watch it, I thought this came out around the same time as, like, The Abyss and all that. And I was wrong. So I was sitting there watching, like, wow, the production values on this are really good. And then, you know, I'm watching, like, wait, Famke Jansen? How the hell old is Famke Jansen? (laughs) Before my brain kicked in, I'm like, why don't you look up the date, stupid? (laughs) In your defense, Treat William in this, which came out in 1998, he basically looks exactly the same as he looked. When he was in Sidney Lumet's Prince of the City, which was in like '84, he barely ages. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... yeah, he's got he's got that uh, Paul Rudd thing going on. Yeah, it just very looks much. the same. But this, I, like I said, I hadn't seen it. I didn't know about. Like I tried to go into these as cold as possible. So really, the only thing I knew about Deep Rising was that Treat Williams was in it, and there was eventually going to be a uh, what do you call those things? A water cycle. What are they called? Ski jet? Ski, yeah, jet, jet ski, ski. Jet ski. Jet ski. <laughs> Ooh, that was harder than it should have been. There was going to be a jet ski. And I didn't even realize it was Famke Jansen because I didn't look too close at the picture. Right. Because I, I tried to go in as cold as possible. I, I had no memory of it. I remember the name and that was it. Yeah. And I saw this when it first hit VHS and hadn't seen it since. So a lot of it was, I'd forgotten a lot of the details for it too. And look, I thought it was fun. It's much better in the first half than the second half, which is going to be a running theme through all of these movies. Well, not all of them. But, uh, so it opens, it opens, uh, you know, on this, you're in, on this boat with Treat Williams driving this, I, it's some sort of speed boat. It looked like a G.I. Joe vehicle to me. Uh, and you got that in my notes is <laughs> the fact that we have a movie that opens with a vehicle that looks exactly 
as far as the interior and exterior, it looks like a G.I. Joe toy. And this is done by Steve Summers, who would go on to do G.I. Joe. Yeah. Well, it actually is an uh, ex-World War II vessel. The exterior of it. Yeah. 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 The yeah. interiors yeah. of it are decidedly yeah. not. Yeah. But yeah, the exteriors are an actual mm-hmm. boat. Yep. So yeah, and Treat Williams plays John Finnegan, who leads this crew consisting of Joey, played by Kevin J. O'Connor, and Leela, who's played by Una Damon. And they're transporting this mysterious gang of mercenaries headed up by West Studi converging on a cruise ship called the Argonautica for mysterious purposes. Yeah, I want to say real quick, this is like the most diverse heist crew I've ever seen. This movie has an amazing supporting cast for the it's mercenaries. fantastic. I mean, it's like, okay, so we, we have a Native American, a Hawaiian, an Australian, a Brit, a West African. I mean, it's like they went out of the way to just be like, we're going to have a full, it's a small world after all heist crew. Yeah, it's two Brits as far as actors. One of the Brits yep. is playing an Australian. Yep. So and and yeah. So we again we have West Studi as the lead, and then there's in the supporting crew alone. This is Jaiman Huntsu, Cliff Curtis, Jason Fleming, who are all incredibly great supporting actors. I had no remembrance that they were in it, so I was so excited when yep. they popped up. Most of my notes are just me getting more and more excited about people being in this movie. It's like Anthony Healed. Things are going to go south in a hurry. He, yeah, is, is it just me, or is he like always a douchebag in films? Yeah. Just, pretty much. It's, it's, just, it's, it's, just it's Dr. Chilton. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's just, it's like, Cliff Curtis, oh shit. Ron Hansu, oh shit. I love everyone in this movie. And then you get the dollar store Colin Farrell. and uh... <laughs> Kano from Mortal Kombat. Yes, it is. Uh, that, that was Trevor Goddard is what I'm talking about. Sorry, Trevor. But also, like, Dime Store Matt Dillon and <laughs> off-brand Richard Grieco. I didn't even write down their names. But the the Dollar Store Matt Damon is, uh, or uh, Matt Dillon was uh, Kevin O'Connor. Yeah. Because he, he looks like he's trying to do Matt Dillon from singles. Kevin J. O'Connor from Lord of Illusions fame. Starting yep. with Famke Jansen of yep. Lord of Illusions fame. <laughs> and so I mentioned on the last pod that Kevin O'Connor is a writer for The Ringer, uh, a sports website who is particularly anti-Ben Simmons of the Sixers and, you know, harps a lot on the Sixers. So he's kind of one of our mortal enemies, those of us who are in Sixers fandom. So I was rooting for this guy to die immediately. Because <laughs> I was looking up the names. Who else is it? Kevin O'Connor. Well, fuck that dude. <laughs> if it hadn't been for test screenings, you would have gotten your wish. That's true. Yeah, in the original uh, version of the film, he was slated to die. But the uh, the test viewers were like, no, we love him. He's great. Bring him back. And so they did. Yep. Yeah. And then Stephen Summers brought him back and everything he did since then. He shows up in The Mummy, shows up in G.I. Joe, shows up in, um, crap, I'm blanking on the other one. But yeah, he shows up yeah. in all the other Stephen Summers stuff. Yeah, you know, consistent I, thing for me. If they're named Kevin O'Connor, I'm not going to root for him. Speaking of Stephen Summers real quick, one of the neat things I found reading about this was everyone who worked with him was like, oh, I love that guy. Like, yeah. just everyone just had yeah, a great time yeah. making the film. We're like, oh, Steven's the best. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mentioned before we started recording, I almost picked up a, there's a two-disc special edition Blu-ray that came out last year from Kino Lorber on this movie, and I was waffling on whether or not to pick it up, and I didn't end up pulling the trigger, but now I'm probably going to go back and do it, just because there's so much material on it. But yeah, everyone seems to love him so much, he has a commentary on it with the editor, and it's like, it sounds like it would just be a hoot. Yeah, it, it really does, and especially with that cast of of all those kind of entertaining and interesting people, I I would I would watch the the commentary for this. It's a few things I'd probably want some explanations for too. Like why would you <laughs> just do a few? Yeah, just, but it, it's funny because the the movie opens with the first of our underwater scrolls. You know, the, the fact roll. Yeah, this gets interesting in terms of. Again, this is going to be similar to some of the movies we're about to talk about, but this movie tells you exactly what it is from Go, because you have the opening studio logo, 
And then there's a little bit of a text crawl. Yeah, it talks about how the uh, the canyons of the South China Sea, you can fit the Himalayas in them. That's yep. how deep they are. Which is true. Yes. I looked it up. Yep. Because it didn't seem true. Yep. And That's I don't true. trust movies. Especially not in the 90s. A <laughs> little bit of a text crawl at the beginning, and then it's not this like slow string, like so creepy, bub. it's instant. Low brass, blah, 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 yeah. and the monster roaring like a motherfucker. <laughs> so this movie tells you exactly how bombastic it's going to be just instantly. Yeah, there's it's, a jump the, scare in the, the credits. Yeah, the yes. first thing it does is it, it almost looks like this thing is like looking over its collection of ruined ships. Like, are there any morsels I missed? Is there anything I could do here? And when it realizes it's just all empty, that's when it takes off. You know, it, it's time to go find a new one. And it, uh, unlike the, uh, this will come up later, but unlike, Leviathan and Deep Star 6, which opened with a similar underwater camera crawl. This one looked like it was shot underwater and not in a fish tank, <laughs> which is a, a problem that I found with the other two films. I'm like, oh, this is sedate and beautiful. This one was not. This one was dark and scary, and like I, I said, it had a jump scare, which I appreciated because I mean, that's that's kind of cool for the credits. Mm-hmm. You know, and then it immediately jumps to this boat in a dark and stormy sea. And it introduces the characters one by one and gives you the summation of their personalities right away. Yeah, this is our first movie of two today, which have a Jerry Goldsmith score. And so we cut from this opening with the monster to the jaunty hero theme, which plays like six (laughs) times. And I just kept I watched this movie a few times. And man, I just wish I could be the timpani player in that thing. (laughs) If you go back and listen to it, the timpani part for this, the hero's theme of this movie is great. So if you're a percussionist out there, go back and it's like, oh, I wish I could be there. It's so heavy and fun. (laughs) I just I, I like that it starts with Treat Williams in right away it felt like it should have been Harrison Ford. Absolutely. And it, it turns out it was written for Harrison Ford when they had a budget and then Harrison Ford bailed and then they're like, Well, here's what's left of your money and made this movie. Yeah, the final budget for this ended up being forty five million. I'm curious to see what it was going to be before they lost Harrison Ford. Because I gotta say, they do well with forty five million that they got. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty good looking. I mean, like I said, it had high production values and I thought it looked great. But it I also thought it, I also thought it came out in nineteen eighty nine, so I was probably <laughs> more impressed than I should have been. But I like that they you know, they introduce Treat Williams sitting there playing cards while his mechanic <laughs> is out in the rain. Out in the rain like, I was like, yelling come on at him. Soon. Nope. Oh, and then she comes her. in and immediately takes her shirt off. So I mean you don't see anything, but it's kinda nice. I'm gonna jump ahead <laughs> on this one a little bit. But so she's Leela. And it's established early on that her and Joey are a thing. Yep. yep. They clearly, you know, have been hooking up for some time. Whatnot. Which which I assume is just a matter of proximity. And then. <laughs> yeah, he's punching above his weight class. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and, and this again, this is jumping ahead. Somewhere around, I guess, a fourth away in the film, she gets just an undeserved death. It's really it's, unceremonious. It's like, un- I, to the yeah. point where I thought she was coming back later. Yes, Absolutely. So not only does she get an undeserved death with no fanfare, like no one mentions her again through the entire film until they get back to the boat with like ten minutes to spare, and he's like, "Oh, he probably got her, didn't he?" Like, yeah. And then they move on. Yeah. That's it. It's over. You know, she gets like the, the scene where she, Treat Williams thinks Kevin O'Connor is dead. It's it, it's longer and sadder than the he, one where where he Kevin O'Connor to the bench. And he's like, "This thing has to die." You know, as Leela goes, "Go, eh." Let's go. Yeah, yeah he says, I think it got her. And it has, you get about 15 seconds of Kevin J. O'Connor working with kind of a, a sad oboe theme playing. And and then it instantly cuts to the jaunty hero theme again as they keep working. It was like, oh, that was sad. Anyway. It really, that's how I'm going to think of him now is the sad oboe. The, the way, sad oboe. The way I see it in my head, the only way it makes sense to me is that the writer 
is just, you know, he's like, I have a woman as the romantic lead. I need no others. And he finishes the script and goes like, well, maybe I can use one more. And he shoehorned her in. It really feels like she's not integral to the part on any level and was added because he's like, ah, I guess I can't get away with just one woman in my script. It feels very misogynistic. Yeah, but, but the second time you see her, she does take her shirt off, which is the same thing that happens with Famke Jansen. Yep. Second time you see her, she takes her shirt off. It's like, this seems to be a theme. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's it's a very sexist film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, even the, the opening scroll on the, the ocean liner that they're they're going towards, it's this big decadent scene, you know, where everybody's trying to find the remains of Nurhachi. Like, it even pans in the, these two white bartender ladies kiss. Yep. You know, to let you know that this is really seedy and, you know, decadent. Well, no, like when um, Canton, the, uh, the the owner of the boat, healed. Uh, yeah, he's up there doing, he does his speech to everyone. And the, and the speech, in short, is basically, we're all rich one percenters, motherfuckers. Let's get drunk and fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody watching this should feel bad when we get slaughtered. So, yep. Yeah, I thought that yep. was an interesting approach to how do we make the audience feel okay about the wanton destruction yes. and gruesome deaths that all these people are about so, to make. So while, rich I, as hell. So while I, incredibly sexist, also very eat the rich. Yep. <laughs> Literally. And very, very Temple of Doom. Very Temple yes. of Doom. Which is, I mean... Again, Harrison Ford. Fits with a lot of this. Even, you know, Famke Jansen and Price, she wasn't doing a musical number when you introduce her. But it turns out she her, her character's name is Trillian St. James. Mm-hmm. Which is directly referenced from Hitchhiker's Guide to the yeah, Galaxy. Yeah, she was named after it. Trillian and, yeah. and Hitch- Hitchhiker's, which I, I thought was kind of cool. Not necessarily the greatest homage, other than it being Famke Jansen, because they don't give her a lot to do. But she's, you know, this jewel thief who gets, you know, caught immediately. Like both times. Yeah. Every time she tries to do something, she gets caught. Yeah. The only thing she can do is pickpocket people. Yeah, she, and one of them she pickpockets without actually ever being near the person in the scene. Yeah, with her hands literally tied behind her back in that yeah. scene. Yeah. I went uh, back and he's like, how did you get that wallet? Oh, telepathy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's her Jean Grey powers kicking in. So this, is, this was her primer for the X-Men. Maybe instead of deep rising, it was phoenix rising. <laughs> so one of the neat things about this movie is all the people you're following when stuff really hits the fan are all bad guys. There are no real heroes in this film. Yeah. You have Famka, who is her own personal jewel thief. You have Canton, who mm-hmm. it is revealed later on actually hired the heist crew that's showing up because he wants to sink the ship because it's not viable. He wants to get the insurance money and move on. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a money sink. The yeah. mercenaries are mercenaries, and even the what is closest to heroes, like Finnegan and his crew, are all basically scoundrel smugglers who are like, we ask no questions, just pay us our money, we'll take where we need to go. Yeah, and also with Finnegan and his crew, uh, who were supposed to be the most likable characters of the bunch, there's also the bit where they blitz right through a passenger craft in the middle of the ocean, just carve it right in half and wonder afterwards, what did we hit? And they try and cover for it later by saying, well, there shouldn't be anything else out here. That may be, but if I were Wes Studi, I would still be somewhat perturbed by the fact that the man I hired blitzed into a stationary object and didn't blink. I do like the fact that they did hit a stationary object, but at no point does anyone ask, was someone on, on it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it never really screwed up. up our boat. You think we killed anybody? Well, it screwed up our boat. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of, of the uh, of Finnegan's crew, I knew I immediately knew probably one of your favorite bits right in the very beginning. So you have Joey, who, you know, they're the ask no questions crew, but Joey's asking questions. So well, they, they even had a motto. Did anybody remember what it was? It was like, we ask no questions and something, something. I know they say it a couple of times. Oh, I didn't times. write it down, but it's like, um, you know, if cash is paid, no questions asked or something like that. Yeah, and they come back. Paying cash, what? no questions asked. Something that's a sort that's of it. rhyme. That's yeah. it. And it comes back and goes, what kind of lifestyle is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so Joey go, decides to sneak in the back and actually see what they're up to. 
This is where he goes back and finds the cases uh, filled with Chinese-style torpedoes, mm-hmm. which they're going to use to sink the ship for Canton. But while he's back there, he sneaks back there, he reaches into his pants, and he pulls out this wrench and totally wrenches his nuts on the way home. Yep. <laughs> nope. I was like, Jake is so happy right now. <laughs> it's also the, the him pulling out the wrench is the first instance of people holding tools, pretending to use tools in a fashion, but not actually doing that. <laughs> and normally it's not the kind of thing I notice, but it's so blatant in a few of these. Like at one point, uh, What's-Her-Face is using an arc welder. And it's doing different things based on the two different angles it shows. You know, and there's a scene later on where they're on the boat and Treat Williams is holding tools and they're supposed to be fixing something, but he's just got two wrenches. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and he's just kind of pulling at him. You know, it looks like he's working, but he's really just holding two wrenches on this one little piece of metal and kind of just shaking his hands. And it's, it's kind of the best summation of a Stephen Summers movie right there. <laughs> Someone working on something with just two wrenches. That, and there's the sequence where the monster's first converging on the, the cruise ship. And there's the sequence of the guy at the helm who's who's calling out the how many meters this thing is close, and it does this super dramatic push in on his face, and then literally repeats the exact same shot. This is a movie that can do two dramatic push ins on an actor back to back, and be like that's fine. Well, that's it, that's the kind of schlock this is. There's it's so many dramatic push ins on this. Yep. It's just like every time they introduce a character, they introduce him from half a mile away, yep. and then then zoom in on it. But it, it happens so much in the beginning. I actually wrote it down. I'm like. Boy, this like smash cuts. <laughs> it's just, it was really funny. But yeah, like a lot of details like that are like, just, I don't know if it's the director's like, look busy. And everybody like, I don't know how to look busy. And we're like, good. You know, I just. <laughs> did, did you two notice the problem with the harpoon gun? So no. when he fires it at West Duty or? So, yeah. So what happens no. is Joey gets caught snooping with the cases. And, the and boy, they beat the shit out they, of him. Apparently, in real life, in yeah. real life, they actually like were kicking him so hard he got bruises. Like yeah. Uh, yeah. he was Steve, padded, but it didn't. It wasn't it enough. Didn't, yeah. Not enough. Yeah. Well, like, look, Jason Fleming's one of them, and he was in Lockstock and Two Smoking yep. Barrels. That guy doesn't know how to hold Ooh. back. <laughs> so what happens is, is that uh, Finnegan comes in and breaks it up by shooting three harpoon shots, like right to the side of Wes's face, and then they cut back to him and he's holding the harpoon gun, which has three harpoon, like as a three harpoon shooter, fully stocked again. At no point, he didn't, there's no sign of a second one. Either he's like the fastest harpooner in the West when it comes to reloading, or he, or he magically has an invisible one on the side. Yeah. Or he came in with two, shot that one, and immediately dropped it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of movie that doesn't really bear close scrutiny. It's better to be seen from, you know, a distance instead of those zoom cuts. Yeah, and it's a movie that tells you that right up front, you know, like I mentioned. But the very opening was like, oh, this is the kind of movie you're in for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of things, like, there's a lot of mess-ups like that. There's there's one where the gun keeps switching the guy's hand from cut to cut. You know, it's just little stuff like that. This movie is loaded through it. So if you want to it's do... It's a little it, sloppy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot sloppy, it's a lot I would sloppy. say. A lot sloppy. But it's seen worse, but... But that doesn't take away from it. I mean, it's still a True. fun movie. Oh, this is one of my favorites. I had a lot of nostalgia for this. Cause I remember watching it when I was a kid. And I love the special effects. The acting cast is impressive. The plot is a little thin, but really it's just trying to get you to that second half of the film. Yeah, and I, I liked the first half more when it was kind of a... Well, what was the, the dumbass Steven Seagal movie on a boat? Under Siege? Under Siege. <laughs> I, liked it, I liked it more when it was Under Siege before the monster really gets into it. It was just, I don't know, it was more fun and he, and he got good lines like Wes Studi shouting, nearly shouting, intimidation factor must be high. You know? <laughs> and, you know, when they get in the boat and everybody's dead and the guy goes, this is total spooky town. Which made me want to rethink the name of the pod, I'm not going to lie. 
Or what was the exchange between the guy who played Kano and Kevin J. O'Connor? Where just was like, I hate you. And he goes, you don't even know me. <laughs> I just love the little banter between them. is amusing. I had a specific note about that one. It says, I don't like you. You don't even know me. That was pretty funny. But his name is Kevin O'Connor, so I'm with Dollar Store Colin Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> so about 23 minutes into the film, you get your first visual victim. It's implied through conversation later that everyone was actively stamp- stampeding, not just out of confusion and fear but like things were happening at that time but you have one woman go into the bathroom where she is assaulted by one of these things which we'll get to in a minute did anybody else have that ghoulies moment i i just wrote down that it was pretty funny that the first kill was a toilet Toilet kill yeah Yeah. i immediately thought of ghoulies like oh no yeah we're going old school no i haven't seen ghoulies i'm I'm hoping that's going to come up on the pod soon see i thought about dead snow oh (laughs) it's it's on the list that's gonna be topics yeah i've never (laughs) seen ghoulie but i have seen dead snow which has a toilet kill that was the one that made me that it made me think of, and then like re- immediately after her is when Uma Damon dies, and I'm still mad about it. I'm not that gonna lie. That was so funny though. Jesus, <laughs> going out. Like, all right, let's open this vault. What we got in here? Axe to the forehead. <laughs> oh, Jamie Hunter's death. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that was fun. It's like you knew it was coming, and it was still hilarious. <laughs> that was about when the movie started to go south for me, because it gets. Part of the problem I had with it is it gets real repetitive with how they're dealing with the tentacle monsters. You know, once it's just it's a lot of running down and you don't expect much from it, except they keep doing the same thing where they like where they get together. Well, how are we going to get away from the tentacles? Well, we'll go here. okay? and then they immediately separate and then the tentacles chase them down a hall and then they come back together. Well, how are we going to get away? Well, let's go here. And then they separate and the tentacles chase them down the hall. And it happens like five times. And as much as I enjoyed everybody in this movie just clearly having a ball, like everybody seemed to be having so much fun making this movie that it really takes the edge off of all the, you know, badness because it's just a fun movie. Mm-hmm. I did notice this. So you're absolutely right about their tactics on how to deal with it are very repetitive and very much. It felt a bit more like the Poseidon adventure, if nothing else. Mm. We're just going to run around this ship dodging what obstacles we can until we can get to the one escape patch. You know, that's it's very much beside adventure on on tactics. Except it's the same obstacle. No, I realize. I realize. But I did appreciate how they ramped up the creature. It's very, if you look at each instance it shows up or is referenced, it is a nice progression. Like first, it's like only Famka knows anything about it as she hears it scream from the side of the boat. Mm -hmm. Then the boat gets stopped. Then you're like, okay, now we see someone die. We don't see how, though. So, it's okay, it's going after the people. And then we see one of the mercenaries gets caught quick. Okay, it's fast. Then the next one, you still don't see it, but you see it is strong now. It's like it's literally revealing itself bit by bit. When you first get in your very first visual, the best way to describe this is the tentacle attacks are what show up. The eels, I guess, is what you might think initially. But that first time that they see it, they don't even see the tips of these things. It's literally they're dealing with the middle of a goddamn eel, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's they see it all wrapped up in the ceiling, and they cut it open, and half-digested Billy falls out. That's <laughs> one of the effect sequences that really holds up pretty well. It for, really for 1998 effects. I was like, hey, the CG in that looks pretty good. It Poor was, Billy all barfed oh, up and man, melted. Like half his head gone. Yeah, yeah, I was impressed. Holes through his hands and yeah. stuff. Oh. But you don't even see the ends of these things yet. You're just dealing with the middle. If you watch it slowly. The middle of the tentacle comes down. It bends itself down and grabs his body and goes back up. Yeah. 
I was like, holy crap. <laughs> and for the half-digested Billy bits, I had in my memory that this was PG-13. Yep. And <laughs> until I started watching it, I was like, oh, 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 it's not. <laughs> Decidedly not PG-13. <laughs> this you, is what PG-13 used to be. <laughs> yeah. When you when you talk about it ramping up the monster, one of the scenes prior to you, you first mm -hmm. you see it, there's a scene where they're, they're in a hallway. <laughs> Go figure, a hallway. <laughs> And it, it's under them, and it starts popping up the stairs. Yes. As it's, which was, I guess was an homage to the thing. Yep. Mm -hmm. It is 100% because Rob Botton is on the, has worked on the film. Designed the monster. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he 100% uh, was pulling from the thing. Yeah. And I, I like that scene. I like that kind of stuff where you don't see it, but it's clearly mm -hmm. coming. You know, you know something bad's going to happen. I thought that was well done. And some of the, the chases and the scares, I mean, there weren't a ton of jump scary type things, at least nothing that wasn't blatantly obvious going to happen. But I liked the way they did it. I just wish they had varied it a little bit. Yeah. Or if everybody stopped getting separated every 32 seconds. Yeah. Know, for no reason. I 100% loved the creature design for this. Mm -hmm. I was a huge fan. I loved the fact that once you see the actual tips of the, these eels, these tentacles, that they're almost like kind of double mouth. Mm -hmm. Like first they open up and then there's like that kind of inner working. Yeah, the xenomorph sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's not the, the shoot-out mouth. Not the protruding, but, but yeah, but, the yeah. same mouth within a mouth, yeah. But it, it made sense to me from, like, an aquatic perspective, is that, you know, you would need that kind of second covering to help keep out outside little water effects and whatever could be there, mm. and the added protection. And they're creepy as hell. And it establishes early that they react to sound and touch. Mm -hmm. That, that these, these things are clearly blind. Which we find out later, because the big reveal of the movie is that they're not 20 or so eel creatures attacking it yeah. so much as 20 or so tentacles of this one central creature which I believe they call the Octolus which doesn't actually come in the film I think it was like originally is that what they called it on set or yeah something? okay yeah, yeah no, it, was, it was almost called like Octolus that didn't feel like a very big reveal to me like no. it seemed kind of obvious up front that these were tentacles but it, they have the bit where Anthony Heald goes on a speech about how it's specifically they're these, these, There's so many. these autonomous creatures where yeah. he talks I forget what the thing is he talks about the undersea life so yeah. that was supposed to be kind of a bait and switch. Yeah, no, I get that he says it. It's just watching him like, yeah, no, these are tentacles. This is this is going to be a monster, <laughs> you know, clearly, obviously. You know, and they, they even sort of, you know, when it picks it up on radar that it shouldn't have been able to pick it up on early in the film, it kind of felt like it was clearly one monster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did find that That was, that that was they, another one of those errors that annoyed me. Yeah, because they, they melted all the computers down. Like Nothing ROMs. works except the radar. Like, why is the radar still working? That yeah, makes no well, sense but it, it doesn't for a second. The radar doesn't work. Oh, we're picking something up on the radar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so much of that. There's a, it's funny. There's a scene, you know, one, one of the ones where they're running away, like water is filling a hallway, and they, they have to, and they get out just as the door's closing, where they use the exact same shot twice, like very blatantly, mm -hmm. you know, at two different points in the movie. It's, it's, it's Treat Williams and Famke Jansen running through a door, and it's slamming shut. I'm like, just film that again how much could it cost to film them running through a door in a different direction <laughs> I, the, the only thing i didn't like about the movie or the, the monster was the little it drinks you alive speech it's I, just it was just too goofy i like the visual like the when they walk into that room full of digested skeletons yeah it was yeah. there specifically to set up the abattoir sequence which had to be such a fun set to and it, was, yeah. it was so cool you know, not like I'm not a big gore person, but that was fun. Like that was Temple of Doom gore. Well, that that's always a problem you get with a lot of horrors. There's always the one guy who has a theory that 100% explains everything. <laughs> I think, oh, that was lucky. <laughs> it was just set up to be such a money line, and it was just such a dud. No, 
They drink you alive. And we're going, oh, God, shut up. <laughs> but they were also to set up the West Studi death sequence, which yes. is another one of my favorite bits. That was so unnerving. <laughs> which has the, the end bit with him shooting at Kevin James yes! Connor. Which is one, we're talking about how formulaic and derivative some bits of it are, but it does, I like that it offsets that every now and again with something that's a little bit quirky, like when the bit when Jason Fleming immediately starts confronting Treat Williams because he thinks they've killed Cliff Curtis's character, uh-huh. and Treat Williams instantly knees him in the balls. <laughs> so, it's so hard to the first time. So that, and then the bit where West Duty shoots Kevin J. O'Connor in the leg as they're trying I to escape. lost it when he did <laughs> I that. I love that. That was yeah. the best. And then we get the callback to it where West Duty is being drunk alive by this monster. Kevin J. O'Connor gives him the gun, says, don't say I ever, never gave you anything, and it instantly fires two shots in. <laughs> Kevin Connors, you asshole! I just, I love that they put into practice. I don't have to run fast. I just have to run, run faster, faster than, than you. <laughs> like, that was great. And it's funny. If you read through the trivia on IMDb, they talk about that. There's a lot of, like, gun nut trivia in this one because they explain all the gun they talk about. There's a lot. Oh, the, the Chinese, like, Gatling gun okay, rifles yeah, or whatever this is, the M1L1 or whatever it's called. Like, people who like guns like this movie, but they talk about that where he shoots that last bullet at Kevin O'Connor, and it, but it doesn't eject it. Like, yeah, it would it if it was empty. That, yeah. It should have ejected. So pe- gun nuts were really offended by that. I wasn't. I didn't care. But it, <laughs> it was just, it was one of those things like, oh, I guess that makes sense, but calm down. There's way dumber things in this than that. <laughs> Speaking of the gun nuts, there's one moment in the movie where, so they have these like cycling, like fully automatic, you know, rifles they have on hand. Mm. And they get to the main room and they get spooked and they all start shooting. And then they stop and they all look at their guns and go, these things are badass. And they start shooting the robot again. Yeah. And go, yeah. <laughs> and this, uh, it's the, the movie's equivalent of the, the, although it's a lot more lighthearted, but it's the sequence in Predator where everybody empties the clip. Yep. Except this time, instead of a forest, it's a lobby. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, another thing I was thinking about when I was watching this movie is related to that and a lot of the tentacles. Stuff, was, was it meant to be 3D? No. Not at this point. No. You would think it based on. There's a lot of shots in it that feel like they were made. That for a 3D been, yeah. movie. But yeah. it wasn't. Yeah, all right. I, I had actually wondered, there was at least one that was really blatant towards the end, or the tentacle coming directly at the camera or something like that. I don't remember what it was, but... Yeah, uh, probably just homages to kind of the schlocky films in the past that would have used that sort of thing. But no, as far as being built for 3D, not to my knowledge. Yeah, and then you get to kind of towards the end, and you see the giant monster, and it, they actually reveal a giant monster. And then they have the kind of goofy... Could have spent a few more dollars scenes of Treat Williams being held in and just waving himself around, even though there's clearly no tentacle around him, and then cutting back to the tentacle. But I, I liked the way it looked. I liked yeah. that they actually had a giant. That Look, this is one of those things for me that'll always be true in monster movies, that if you have a giant monster, I'll enjoy it. But if you Sold. imply there's a giant monster and then don't reveal it, I'm going to have a bad opinion of your movie. <laughs> this one, this one has a big reveal. It shows you the giant monster. And it is pretty cool looking. I, I dug it. And it, it's one of those things, like so much of this movie is just fun that it really takes the edge off of all the, the stuff that doesn't make sense. Like, you know, when Treat Williams rescues Famke Jansen from Anthony Hill towards the end, it's like none of what just happened makes a lick of sense. Oh, and now you're on a jet ski going around the boat. Which looks cool, doesn't make any sense. It's, it's their Michael Bay moment. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to have the, the big chase, the big splash, and then the huge boom, and you're going to fly out. Yeah, it's, it's a Michael Bay moment. But that it's funny, because at that point is when I stopped being able to envision it as being Harrison Ford. 
The first half, absolutely, I can envision it being Harrison Ford, especially when he says, I've got, got a, a bad, bad feeling, feeling about this. this. <laughs> and there's a few lines, but the second half, I, and it makes me think that they might have rewritten it or redone it with Treat Williams rather than Harrison Ford because you know that would have gone differently. Mm-hmm. Like, Harrison Ford is not going to wiggle himself, you know, like he's being held by a tentacle that you can't see. Nope. So I'm not going to be around no goddamn pyrotechnics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like... Look, I like Treat Williams fine, but it felt like he has less inherent dignity than Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of the things that the movie just said, all right. And it's certainly possible I'm reading too much into that. And I just like Harrison Ford more than. But you can kind of see what I'm saying, though, right? Like, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, you can't picture Harrison Ford on a fucking jet ski in the <laughs> hallway, you know, spouting out, what was his catchphrase that they flipped? It's, what uh, now? What now? What now became now what? Or, yeah. It was supposed to be now what became what now? now. Yep. Yeah. Something. yep. Yeah. yeah. Harrison Ford sitting there was like, I did Air Force One two years ago. That's as slocky as I'm going to get. <laughs> I'm doing no goddamn CGI bullshit. I was the fugitive, damn it. <laughs> did anybody else, was anybody else bothered with the fact that Ward... You're talking about a creature. Not any more than anything else yeah, bothered no, I me. Loved that <laughs> I, no, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the roar. But then there was the back of my head It was like, why the hell is this thing roaring? Like, it makes maybe sense at the end. But during the whole thing, I'm like, this thing is a massive apex predator. It doesn't need to scare off anything else. It doesn't need to. It sure as heck doesn't want to announce its presence when it's about to eat something. It has zero need for this level of communication. Of course, unless it had other large apex predators to deal with, which brings us to the end of the film, where they land. Oh the yes, yeah, the, the tail end. <laughs> oh, I love that shit. <laughs> where they land on that island, yeah. and you know they have this scene where they kiss for no, you know, oh yeah, we're gonna kiss because we're a romantic lead, even though nothing about anything that happened prior to this implies that we would even be interested in each other. She's, the only, she's the only woman in the movie. Of course she has to kiss the hero. Well, because that's of, how these things go in a well, terrible well, fashion. I understand that. She's also got to be, what, 20 years younger than him? Yeah. Thereabouts, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Both Nick and I had bits in our notes regarding bits Jake might like. For Nick, it was the nutshot sequence. For me, it was the bit where Famke Jansen kisses Treat Williams and says, better than a cold beer, huh? <laughs> Jake is thinking, depends. Is it PBR? <laughs> <laughs> Look, Famke Jansen is better than a cold beer. She has that one line early when she gets arrested or, or picked up by the crew and they're going through her file. And Anthony Heald has that line where he says, it's a pretty unflattering photo of you. And it's like, there aren't any unflattering photos of Famke Jansen. <laughs> that line should have been rewritten. <laughs> it, you know, it was originally supposed to be Claire Forlani. Mm-hmm. She was on set and she dropped out after three days citing differences with, with Summers. So we should talk about how they uh, wrap the film up. So, you know, this thing has been rampaging the ship. With its honestly inconceivably long tentacles, because <laughs> it's capable of exploring every corner of this cruise ship, and it's huge, so I doubt the central port is moving that much through the ship. Mm-hmm. But so it's improbably long tentacles. Check the whole place out. And they're like, "All right, screw this thing. You killed my friend Joey. I'm gonna blow you the hell up." So they take the Russian, uh, the uh, the Chinese missiles, load them on the, sh- on the ship, gear them up, and then send an autopilot to come back and blow the damn thing up. It is worth noting that when Famka first sees the boat. She says, that heap of junk is your boat? It immediately went to the, you came in that thing, you're braver than I thought. It's like, everything is a Han Solo reference. There's, there's a lot, yeah. <laughs> that was also the first scene Anthony Hill filmed, was his death scene on the yep, boat. That's yeah. right. And he was dealing with a staph infection in his foot. 
the whole yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah they, they mentioned it. it's like he's got a staff infection. He wasn't able to bond with the rest of the cast. Because he was too busy, like, getting seeking medical attention when he wasn't working. And all I could <laughs> think is, man, did I want to go to that party. <laughs> Holy shit. Which goes to something that's going to come up for the rest of these films, too, that I think is worth noting. We were talking about how much we think these folks were having fun in the making of this film. But films like this and the three we're about to discuss must just be hell to film. Anything that's underwater, because you were just wet. Constantly. Constantly. And for multiple takes, for multiple days. So these films that we're, and particularly the ones we're about to get into, can't be a party. You know, because you're just going to be wet and miserable by virtue of the premise. So for folks to be looking and like they're having fun in this, hopefully speaks to the onset atmosphere for Deep Rising. Yeah, I mean, again, it certainly seemed like everybody was having a good time. And it it was interesting. So we talked about the very end, we touched on it briefly, where they, they land on the island, they kiss, suddenly the comic relief guy shows up to make another joke. And they hear the monster in the woods, the the roar. Because this was actually set up to have a sequel. Yeah, it was supposed to be a King, King Kong. Kong. It was movie. a backdoor was, King Kong movie. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then it, you know that got stuck in development hell until Peter Jackson made it. Yep. Which I'm kind of glad. Yeah. And also kind of disappointed <laughs> because Treat Williams and Famke Jansen and Kevin O'Connor running around, you know, Skull Island would have at least been more entertaining than Jack Black doing it. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't like the 2005 King Kong much. But it was... It was a lot of fun. It was a fun movie. It wasn't yeah. a good movie. Although I, I wrote down a bit of a review from Entertainment... From one thing was, which said, On the other hand, Entertainment Weekly gave Deep Rising a positive review, awarding it a B-, minus, stating that it is a tightly written... <laughs> often howlingly funny aliens knockoff that in its portrayal of tough men and tougher women under pressure favorably recalls the work of Howard Hawks. Wow. I, it was the tightly written that got to me. Yeah. But also the the aliens knockoff. It's not. Not really. They're never on the offensive. They're always on on they're constantly running. Yeah, I mean, they attack the boat, but it's it's a very lazy comparison. It's like, yes. oh, it's a monster, and there's guys with guns. It must be aliens. But that comes up a lot in the movies we're going to discuss. Well, I think it's an easy comparison for a lot of people, because they're like, when you have anything on the ocean or under the ocean, you're dealing with, in a lot of cases, darkness, isolation, lack of resources. It's very easy to equate anything ocean-based with space. Yeah, for sure. And then there's this, you know, scary monster that's hunting down a crew. So in the very basic essence of it, I get it more so with Deep Star 6 and Leviathan than Deep Rising. Deep Rising doesn't particularly echo any of that. There's a monster, but it's just a monster movie. It's not like Aliens is not like this. Alien is not like this. I haven't seen like Aliens 4. Maybe Aliens 4 is like this. This is certainly better than the later Alien movies. So, yeah, it was it was a real lazy comparison in this sense, but it's funny that it comes up with everything but the bay. It gets mentioned as an aliens knockoff or alien knockoff. Yep. And again, that's more pronounced in some of the ones we're going to get into, but with this one, it just it didn't feel right. It wasn't the right comparison. This was, like I kept saying, this was closer to like Temple of Doom. Yeah, it's. I think it's vibe. just so much in terms of being technologically well-armed grunts versus a monster, I think, is the extent of which the aliens thing holds up. Yeah. yeah. Beyond that, it's... This is closer to a loose comparison. It's yeah. closer yeah. to Predator than it is Aliens. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. the Howard Hawks portion of that analogy is closer than the Aliens bit. Yeah. Did you guys read about the water tank debacle with this? 
a bit about it, yeah. 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 They were originally going to uh, shoot in Los Angeles, but the water tank rental there alone was going to cost them like $200,000. They're like, oh, we're not doing that. We're going to go to uh, the Vancouver instead. We'll film there. So they did build a water tank there. And then it burst and flooded several blocks nearby yep. and ended up costing them like $600,000. <laughs> which whoops, which feels like maybe when they decided it was Treat Williams instead of Harrison Ford. <laughs> I couldn't swear by it. And apparently the TV version of this is just awful because they cut like 30 minutes of it out. It's funny. Apparently on the commentary, the editor says there was an attempt to make a PG-13 cut of this movie. And the editor stated, that's what I call a Vietnam mission. <laughs> he said, referring to spending an amount of time on something that you know is not going to be achieved. Also, one other tidbit I thought you might like, I don't know if you read this or not, that the uh, T-Ray's character, the handgun he has, based on the model and where it was filmed, is very likely the same gun used by Gillian Anderson in the X-Files. I didn't know that, but yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> very random. Yes. And very gun nut. Yes. That is a very gun nut. There were so many gun uh, facts in I this just, movie. Yeah, I kind of glossed over them when I was reading the trivia and stuff about it. Because it didn't, I mean, there's guns. Yeah. It didn't feel like a gun movie. No. I, but I feel only, like the promo for this should be us wearing like American flag shirts, clutching deep, <laughs> the Blu-ray copies of Deep Rising. You're not going to take my cult movie classic from me, government! <laughs> What's actually kind of funny about it, you talk about guns, one last note on that is that the his ship has a gun on it. Yes. It very prominently is no, shown early on and, and never used. No, not yep. at all. They never fired it, never mentioned it, nothing. Yep. It's like they introduced that gun in Act 1 and they were like, haha, fooled you. <laughs> I felt like they they left it more as to signify what kind of boat it was and where it came from, less than its actual need for use. Yeah. Well, the last thing I'd say on this is that it's classified as a horror movie, but it's not a horror movie. It's an action thriller. It's an action thriller. Yeah, it has horror sensibilities to a small extent, but no, it's well, in, in pacing and in it, structure. It's, it has it's horrific a, moments. Yeah. Half Digested Billy is a horror thing, but... The Room Full of Skeletons is a horror thing. Yeah, but at the same time, it's not... It just didn't... It, again... If I had to pick the closest movie in texture to it, I keep saying it, it's Temple of Doom. Absolutely. It's just, you know, it doesn't really compare to that, and the plot aren't similar except the beginning, but it, it's just got that vibe to it, like this increased level of wackiness and mm. the kind of slapsticky, very, it's a very pulp film. Yes. Whereas the 1989 movies... Like Deep Star Six. Deep Star Six and Leviathan are distinctly... Horror movies. Yes. So we've had our Bay movie. We've had, you know, Topside. And now we've gone to the ocean surface. And now diving, deep. diving down to the bottom. Well, why don't we start with Leviathan? Uh, well, Deep Star 6 came out first. Do you want to do it? Yep. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about Deep Star 6 then. Yeah. In this fact, is... that was the big crux with Deep Star 6 was the, you know, the race to be the first one out in 1989. Yep. So Deep Star 6 came out January 13th. Leviathan came out two months later, March 17th. Abyss came out later on August 9th of that year. And nestled in between, April the 21st, Roger Corman got his one in, so which was uh, Lords <laughs> of the Deep. Which I'm surprised Corman didn't get his out first before I anybody. I, it's funny you mentioned that. I was reading about these films, and I knew that the three of them came out, and I'd never heard Lords of the Deep. And in reading about it, one of them mentioned, you know, the four movies that came out, and I thought, well, what the hell was the fourth? I said, Lords of the Deep? What's Lords of the Deep? Maybe we should do that. And then I saw who directed and I'm like, oh, never mind. <laughs> it's funny. In, for the first couple episodes of this, I had watched those awful sex comedies in one way or the other. And I was like, 
Maybe I should watch the Corman one because that's probably going to be the closest I'm going to get. Unless Deep Star Dicks exists, <laughs> then Lords of the Deep, a Corman movie, is probably going to be the closest. But I held off on it because I think that there's probably a decent chance if we ever circle back to underwater stuff, we'll probably end up doing that one. There was a fifth one, too, but it went straight to video called The Evil Below. That one came out in July, so that was a month before the abyss. Yeah, uh, yeah I didn't come across that one. Yep. This was put out by TriStar and Karolko. Carolco, yep. Yep. Which, funny enough, is responsible for big blockbusters like Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Total Recall, Basic Instinct. You know, they were capable of good films and, like, really big films. This was not one of them. No. <laughs> it's funny. That's my first note on here was Carolco. Huh. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. I mean, this is the same production company that brought you The Changeling and Jacob's Ladder. I mean, this, there's no reason this film turned out the way it did. <laughs> Speed, yep, it's all about being the first one out of the gate, too. Yep. And there were some production hiccups, too. So the director of this one is Sean Cunningham, uh, Friday the 13th fame, directed the first one and then produced a bunch of them after that. Which is um, funny, because it has the same ending as Friday the 13th. Very it much really so, does! Right? <laughs> um, and, and same composer. There's a lot of overlap here. It was supposed to be a different director. It was supposed to be Robert Harmon, mm -hmm. um, who was the guy who did The Hitcher. But I listened to a podcast that Sean Cunningham did with Mick Garris, the postmortem podcast, which is quite fun. And in that, he mentions that Harmon, there was a movie he had abandoned due to the writer's strike. And when the strike was resolved, Harmon felt obligated to go back to that project. So Cunningham kind of came into this. He was shepherding the project as a producer, but him coming into the directing thing kind of came in late. Okay. Um, so that was probably part of the chaos of this, rushing to get out the gate first. And then there's also problems they had with the monster. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny that you talk about rushing out of the gate, because I guess the order you said was Deep Star 6, then Leviathan, then the Abyss. Yep. Which I would... Bet is the reverse money order, too. Yep. Um, yeah, I don't have it noted, but yeah, so Deep Star, so we'll, real quick, we'll do the box office and budget for that. So Deep Star had a reported budget of $8 million and brought in 8.1. Just even. <laughs> yep, skipping forward to Leviathan. Leviathan was a $20 million budget and brought in 15.7. So, uh, and I don't must. have the, the, the numbers for The Abyss, but as I recall off the top of my head, The Abyss didn't do great in theaters, from what I remember. I don't know, but I, I know it got some Oscar nominations. So it did, yeah. I just it's certainly it the most well-remembered of the trio. I, I, I have to assume it made some money. Yeah, I'm sure, the other two. yeah, I'm sure it made its money back eventually, I would yeah. guess. But between all the other the extended editions and stuff they did. But the writer on Deep Star Six, or one of them, is a guy named Lewis Abernathy, who was actually friends with Cameron. And <laughs> when, uh, again, I, this mad rush of Deep Sea films was kind of kicked off by the Abyss going into production. And apparently Cameron asked Abernathy, can can you not do this? I'm, you know I'm getting ready to do this massive underwater movie. And Abernathy said, nope. Doing it and anyway. And forward with it. And apparently there was a rift between them for a while, which I guess was healed over at some point. Because I think Abernathy worked with Cameron on Titanic, I guess, yep. doing some of the underwater work for that. But Seems like it would have been healed over when Cameron saw Deep Star 6. Cameron's a guy who can hold grudges. But yeah, it's a cause. <laughs> <laughs> so look, I liked this yeah. uh, quite a bit. In fact, I liked it. How can you not like a movie that starts right off scene one with the hot dad from My Two Dads? <laughs> <laughs> I see, well, scene one, actually, we get the opening shot, we get the, the company logos, and then it, we get the Harry Manfredini scores, this camera shot plunges down through the water, and we're seeing schools of fish go by and all this. And there's a shot of a shark, which is our first shark appearance in the films we're going to talk about. And it bumps into the camera and then swims away. So it's like... We immediately started with what felt like an outtake. <laughs> it looked like the shark fucked up and missed its, its missed its mark. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, can I do that again? It's, Just it's keep rolling. It's definitely the worst of the let's film underwater scenes to start the picture, which is a theme for three of these anyway. 
and it, it's just the cheapest one. It's the one that looks most like it's, you know, just some dude in the Caribbean filming this as he goes down. It's like, this is cool. And then somebody buying that later on. Like, it's very well lit. Yeah, the difference bright. between this and Leviathan's opening, which is basically exactly the same, just more polished. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's instantly a kind of a testament to the different films there. Yeah, it's also, you know, you said it's the hot dad from My Two Dads instead of RoboCop. So everything is like <laughs> is like Leviathan, but a notch lower <laughs> in this. But that said, it had Miguel Ferrer in it. Who, yes, it did. Uh, who was a notch above. Born out for my man. Everybody in yeah, any yes. of these movies. I love Miguel Ferrer. In He's part, fantastic. In part because of his role in the Stand TV film. He'll always he be was great in that. Oh, one see, of for my me, guys. it's for him. All the stuff he's done, you know, David Lynch, um, I guess he did some X-Files stuff. Um, mm-hmm. All this stuff he's done, but for me, it's always Hot Shots Part 2. <laughs> of all things, that was the first time I took note of him. Not a great movie, but even to this day, every time I see him, I think, War, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> or in the case of this franchise, it'd be Water, it's fantastic. <laughs> His role in this movie was so, of the things that were over the top, he was it, in my opinion. Because of all the problems they encounter, he is the number one worst thing that could have happened to these people. Everything (laughs) is his fault. Everything is his fault. The only thing that's not his fault are the two guys who fall prey to the crab monster early. Oh, which I have a problem with that. Okay, so here we go. Just one? (laughs) so the premise of the film is that this is an underwater construction crew they're building a missile platform for the u.s navy Mm -hmm. and they when the process of putting this together they realize that where they want to put it there is a subterranean cavern and so their intention is to just blow it up so they could flatten the thing out and then just put it on top so they go out and they do so and this thing the cavern is huge like almost the entire area that they'd cited for this build collapses and they go in and they send in the probe to investigate. And very quickly, this first ship is assaulted by the creature, which you don't see yet. That being said, I want to ask you, at what point did they ever actually check on those two guys? Never. 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 They never check on them. They are, no one knows their condition. They may be the the, the last guys under the going. You think they're still going to come back for us? <laughs> yeah, and then that's a logic leap in there that stuck out. We'll get more into the death of those guys in a minute. But I do want to say that one thing that's interesting in this film and Leviathan and, and also Underwater, which we'll get to later, is the degree of the relationship between people on the front lines versus corporate decision making. And Deep Star Six is a great encapsulation of senior management approach in this film, which is, hey, we have a problem. Like, Just do it. Yeah. Blow it the fuck up and don't think about the consequences. <laughs> like, yep, yeah, that, that's about right. And then you have Snyder, who is the peril of unpaid overtime and, and forced to work in poor conditions. And it's like, oh, Miguel Ferrer's what you get. Yeah, he he plays it so manic, and he oh, he, he feels like the only one really having a good time with this. <laughs> but oddly, and it's of all of these films, it's the most human. Of them, it spends the most time kind of developing the characters, making them trying to. <laughs> it's debatable how successful they are, but trying to make them more three dimensional. Trying, yeah. Like, like we get to the bit where the movie opens with some of the crew showing up to the base. Snyder, the Miguel Ferrer character we mentioned, has been on there for a while. It has should have left some time ago, but he's been forced to stay beyond his time, so he's starting to go stir crazy. And there's the bit where he runs into Hodges. And they have this exchange where Hodges mentions that he left a pornographic video for him. And they have that banter where Miguel Ferrer goes, is it hot? Is it wet? 
it's smooth. Is it ripe? And, and Hodge is going, it's wet. It's hot. It's smooth. Yes. And they have this. And I thought for a moment, well, two things. One, A, is every single movie from Deep Rising on that we're about to talk about, except maybe Underwater, has a sequence with someone fawning over pornography. Yep. Because yep. it happens in Deep Rising. There's the sequence yep. where Cliff Curtis sees the porno pinups on the ship yes. and says, meet my future ex-wives. Nope. So there's that. But when you got that exchange between Hodges and Snyder, I thought, oh, this is going to have fun banter. And it turns out, not really. <laughs> it has that. And then it has some half-hearted attempts at it. You get the sequence where Matt McCoy, his character, is in a relationship with Nia Peebles. Yep. And when he sees her for the first time, he's you know being flirtatious with her and talking about, hey, we need to find time to be alone together. And the captain keeps shutting him down. The captain keeps saying, you know, oh, nope, I'm going to need you to do this. And after that, I need you to do this. And after that, you got to do this. And the captain's name is Laidlaw. Which I can only assume for, on my ship, nobody gets laid, and that's the law. (laughs) (laughs) Captain also being one of the characters I quite liked in this. For what little time he's in the movie, I thought the captain was fun. Yeah. It was good. I think they just, it tried real hard to make the characters at least a little bit more than cardboard cutouts. Now, it wasn't always successful. They explore that, but Because, yeah. again, you know, like the, the first thing, or not the first thing, but one of the, the first things that the hot dad from My Two Dads talks about with the romantic interest is that he's a loner, and he's a drifter, and he's yeah. never settled down. Yeah. He's a bad boy. <laughs> what well, opens with him having a dream about being in a boat, which surely must be incredibly uncommon when you're in the <laughs> line of work he is, because his partner in this movie has the line, so that's the third time you've had that dream that month. And he's like, yeah, I'm sure it's really uncommon. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned uh, that this was going up against Roger Corman for like the speed to get out, because I felt the set design was very reminiscent of the set design used in Galaxy of Terror and Forbidden yes! World. I, yes. was like, I was like, I've seen this set before. <laughs> yes, and it's funny, one of the things I want to do most coming out of this, with for all the folks who have talked about these underwater films in juxtaposition where it's an alien ripoff, it's, it makes me want to do the actual alien ripoffs like Galaxy of yes, Terror. Yes, yes. Which, funnily enough, James Cameron did the set for most of those movies. That's he right. did all the set work for Galaxy of Terror, so he, there's a connection there. That's that's funny. I've never seen like, Galaxy They use the exact sets between those two films. I wonder, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I wonder if that's that's why this one is set in the future more so than the other ones. Like they distinctly say it's in the future, and there's a few flourishes there that I don't even remember what they are that point out that it's not. I forget for this one. Yeah, Leviathan okay. is set in twenty. What was the year for Leviathan? Twenty twenty seven is Leviathan. So, and I know yeah. Deep Star Six is supposed to be the future as well. But I don't think they nail down. The yeah, but it, it's definitely the one that tries to be the most futuristic, despite the one having the. Uh, underwater suits that look most like G.I. Joe Deep Six suits, yep. mm-hmm. which are not not great. But again, I I think they did a good job just trying to establish characters and telling, you know, this sort of vague story about this undersea mining platform, which is very similar across most of these movies, but it it spends the most time on it. Like, they feel the, the least like cardboard cutouts. And again, I don't mean to say that this is giving this movie a lot of credit. The shit was never going to win a fucking Oscar. <laughs> but it, it, it somewhere was... Sean Cunningham has a tear rolled down his face when the Oscar nominations were announced that year. Well, but I like, thought we were a lock. <laughs> you know, you think about the characters in this versus the other ones, and it just it spends time on it, and I, I appreciated that. In terms of screen time, I agree with you. <laughs> in terms of how it's done, yeah, but yeah. Well, it's clunky. Look, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that it was successful. It was rushed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that it made the effort. And then... It thought about the effort, nothing. It ran it through a room of effort. <laughs> it also takes the longest to get to... 
<laughs> the this effort is, hot box. <laughs> this is the rare steak of effort. <laughs> it also takes the longest time to get to the monster itself from all of them. The actual like visual reveal? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it yeah, takes 25 minutes for it before it hits the drone, yeah. our first real victim of the film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you don't really see it till the two thirds mark. This is probably something I'm going to go ahead and mention now, just because before I say it and it slips up. So when I was doing the notes for this movie, I kept saying, you know, the monster this, the monster this, the monster this, and I was like, man, this feels really impersonal, just writing the monster over and over. So I named him Daryl, no real reason. <laughs> he just he feels like a Daryl to me. Daryl so, the crustacean. So, so when I say Daryl, I'm referring to the monster from Deep Star Daryl. Um, so Deep Star. But yeah, we don't see Daryl until like the two-third mark, is nope. where we see Daryl is the start of the money sequence of the film for me, which we'll get to in a second. But in addition to that, in terms of the film as a whole, and speaking of those early deaths, how many deaths in this movie are Daryl's fault? Because it's really only one. Because Hodges and, who is it, Cooper? Who's the other guy who's in there with, with Hodges? The first ship? Osborne. Mean? Yeah. Hodges and Osborne, who were in the, um, who were in the shuttle. Yeah. Well, they... We don't know it was Daryl coming after them. A, if it was, we don't see them die. Then the next character who dies is Bersiaga. That's improperly stored equipment. Daryl just bumped into him. Daryl's just clumsy in this movie. We don't see him eat anything. Bersiaga, human failure, improperly stored equipment. Captain Laidlaw, who gets crushed by a door. Yep. Human failure. Yep. Improperly stored equipment. And he, technically, he dies by drowning himself. Yes. Yes, he does. He does. Yeah. So again, that's for, for not, no good reason. Not on Daryl. Yep. Not on Daryl. Nope. Daryl's hands are clean in that one. You get to Matt McCoy. Now, that is Daryl's fault. Yeah. He, <laughs> he bites but, him in half, yes, doesn't he? But took, I took the bottom half of him. But when you put someone on a hook and dangle him, <laughs> and Daryl's like, well, apparently I'm in SeaWorld, and this is what the crowd wants to see, is they want to see me leap up and take a big bite. I should so do this. He's 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 a people pleaser, is what I'm trying to say about Daryl. Um, but no, it's one thing, and so we'll, we'll gloss over the subsequent deaths for the moment. But yeah, I was watching this, I was like, you know, not a lot of this is t- really the monster's fault. At it's least not. not confirmed. He's just clumsy. A vast majority of it is caused by themselves. Or one person in particular. Miguel Ferrer. Yeah, Miguel. Yeah. I, I I will say this. There were two deaths that made me sad in this. One was Miguel Ferrer, because yes. I was rooting for him. Yeah. Come on. Maybe he's the one person that doesn't need to decompress. <laughs> uh, which also doesn't make people explode. At least not like that. And Matt McCoy. Because Matt McCoy was my favorite part of this entire film. Yes. So, so like, look, I, I have inherent like of him for, I don't know why, probably because of the lawyer character on Silicon Valley he plays. But he's so Police Academy assignment Miami Beach. Yes, yes, that's <laughs> where I always go. Absolutely, I have not seen that. It's but it's he's just so happy. Yes, this yes, entire film, he yes. is smiling the entire Constantly. film, like he is either stoned off his nuts <laughs> or death just, scene. just happy to have work or something. But he he the whole thing is like oh that, that yep I'm let's do it, let's right. do it Captain. Hey. This is great. I'm happy. Yeah, big hair. ass hair, eighties hair, and. <laughs> Like, he should have been wearing a Hawaiian shirt this entire film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and his death scene actually kind of works because of that. Mm-hmm. Like, his death scene is the one bit in the film I actually thought was kind of effective. When they're pulling him out of the water, and you see him inside the thing, and he's screaming, you know, let me the hell out of here, in juxtaposition to how he was in the rest of the this film. This is the one moment where things yeah. have gotten serious. And it yeah. was, like, just the way they staged it, where you see him come out of the water, and he's freaking the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And then you you hear the beep, as, and they realize there's something else in the airlock. It was like, oh, this this actually kind of works. So, yeah, his performance was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and he's just, again, he's just so happy. And he made me happy by proxy. He's got that smile and those, like, the shining yeah. eyes. Like, hey. Yeah, that you he's, cl- smile with he's clearly on drugs. <laughs> he's clearly on drugs. Like, whatever the methane makes in the air down there, it was, it was hitting him different. <laughs> Did anybody else obsess over the size of the cavern? I forget what they mentioned about it. All I know is, is they call it basically, it's, it's like a lava bubble. All right? So, like, the lava formed a bubble. And it kind of had its own sub-ecosystem. And I realize they're on a budget. It's cheap. They're short on time. But the science brain in me is like, what the hell has this thing been eating all this time? Like, the only example they showed of any sort of, like, it's been eating glowing jellyfish. And that's about it. I have a real problem with when you're going to introduce a subterranean creature you're releasing, you need to have some explanation of its ecosystem. Well, let me ask you this. How big is the creature? Two or three times the size of a person, I guess. Are you sure? Because there's a few scenes where it's underwater in a room where the water's no more than two feet deep and nobody can find it. <laughs> yeah. Particularly the scene after the, the Matt McCoy sequence where it gets into the base, where's the bit where the water is barely over the level of the gap where it came in, but all yeah. of a sudden this massive thing apparently crested the lip yeah. of this entranceway and nobody saw it. <laughs> it. It seems to be very thin. Almost like a lobster. See, my explanation is different. My explanation is that every time it's jumping out of the water, there's a loud sound. What the loud sound is, because in the 80s you couldn't really hear it, is it's the monster shouting, Enoch Chuck! (laughs) 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 And then growing. Like Apache Chief. Uh, if that's a reference that's too old for any of you I'm going to do the, the Foley effect of woo that they do when he grows, and I'm just going to overlay that every time he comes out yep. of the water. We'll do like a montage of that. Because the monster size makes zero sense with anything that happens in the film. Yep. To the point of distraction for me. But then again, I thought of the Apache Chief and everything was better. Yeah, so I see what you're saying about the science for the cavern, yeah. but I don't think they thought about the science Not at for all. anything. Not at in all. This. But that, for me, that's one of the things that bugs me. Once again, they took explosive decompression to its <laughs> degree with Miguel Ferrer in there. <laughs> when they said the, I don't, I don't know why this tickled me so much. So they go up to the cavern, they have the bomb, they go, steady, steady, oh, careful, careful, oh, okay, now. And they let it go, and they go, bonk, it just drops. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, be careful. Bomb. All yeah. right, we're good. <laughs> this is another one of those movies where the details yeah, went a little fast and loose. But it's still, like, it overall, I don't know. I, I think it kind of worked. It worked on a level where a lot of this stuff is just unintentionally funny. Like, yeah. Miguel for our detonating the nukes. <laughs> oh, so my God. We- I was just yep. about to say. But he's like, oh, I got to scare these things. Okay. Well, is it because you know, they're, they're not going to be used, you know, or we're going to be delayed or aggression? Hey, do you think this thing is, think is aggressive? Oh, it's aggressive. Okay, it's aggression. And then Fly Out says, detonation <laughs> procedures. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I can do this. <laughs> yeah, and it requires another step. Like, he sees that prompt and yeah. like, okay. <laughs> Puts now, the key in. <laughs> yeah, do these 20 things to initiate detonation. Push the fire button. Yeah, this is good. It's good. <laughs> Under no circumstances does he go, maybe blowing up nuclear warheads like less than a mile away is not a good idea. <laughs> I do believe that that's why Randall Flagg took him is because yeah. he was willing to blow up nukes <laughs> Without thinking too much about it. I just follow the protocols, man. It's in the <laughs> SOP. It's in standard SOP. That is sort of a theme with him in, in films, as it turns out. <laughs> no hand of God in this one, but, you know, maybe there was. We didn't see but a blow up. This just goes back to the fact that the people were the biggest problem in this film. Oh, yeah. Daryl, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> I guess Daryl's... <laughs> so, Snyder sets off the nukes. 
the shockwave of the explosion has adverse effects on the station. It's, it starts to comprise its integrity. Yeah, so we're now on an oxygen leaking. timer and the reactor timer. Yep. Both, both are dwindling or about to explode. Yep. So we have ticking clocks now. And so they then need to send Matt McCoy down to patch some part of the, the ship, decompression of the, the decompression. So they can system. escape. And this is where we get the first actual appearance of Daryl. So we now enter in a section of the film. So I'm just going to turn my notes around so you can see. And I oh have my. in bold print several sequences that begin with LOL, <laughs> which is because for this sequence, which lasted 16 minutes, I was laughing my head off. And this is a sequence I refer to as the hoot streak <laughs> because I was just laughing constantly. And it begins where they send Matt McCoy down, bring him back up. And we see Daryl for the first time. He chops off Matt McCoy's lower half. And then Matt McCoy's upper half is bobbing along until they um, until they let him go. And then just from that all the way through up for the next 16 minutes up and through. Basically, I'm capping it off at Snyder's end because it feels wrong. It feels like that's where it should end. I laughed at a lot of bits after that, but it feels like that section of the film is just an absolute hoot. So the first half of this film, or not first two thirds, actually, I was pretty mild on, but then this sequence is just glorious. Well, it, it kind of telegraphs that it's starting to get into the more ridiculous stage with one of the more tender moments in the film between the hot dad from My Two Dads and the romantic lead where, where she's, it's right after the captain died. She's drenched and cold and he takes off his wet shirt. And puts it on in the warmer. To me, that was like an alarm bell that was like, oh, oh, we've hit the top of the roller coaster and we're about to plunge. Here, here honey, let's compound the problem. <laughs> Did anybody else? I mean, it's probably just because I'm, I'm a parent, but like, they're like, all right, we need to do all this stuff to get out of here. And they start doing the, the big repair montage. And in my head, I just hear, like, you know, Bob the Builder, can we fix it? Yes, we can! <laughs> they at least look like they're using tools correctly, yes, unlike anything yes. that happens in Deep Rising. But I, I want to hear the, the, the notes as you've written them for the, the lull sequence. Oh, uh, just sequence. So, LOL at Daryl's first kill. Daryl apparently thinks it's SeaWorld and is swimming up for a treat. <laughs> and so also, the effects on Daryl are pretty decent, which I thought, yeah, for, for what it is, the monster looks okay for this. <laughs> Yeah. Wall at Miguel Ferrer's. Oh shit! <laughs> Wall at Miguel Ferrer headbutting the lead character. Wow at the CO2 harpoon kill. Wow at the Friday the 13th trembling strings music cue when Slider's hallucinating. And then this next one's technically after the hoot streak. It's the lol at the will you marry me bit, which immediately follows Snyder's death, which is when the three survivors have the quiet moment, and that's when we get the will you marry me bit between the, the, the romantic leads. You see, I'm telling you, the movie tried to make him human. Bad. Although, you know, it's funny, you bring up the uh, the CO2 harpoon kill. That is the funniest, that is so shit. funniest <laughs> part of the movie. It's not my fault! <laughs> he just poop, and he just blows up the doc, who was an asshole, so really, you don't feel so bad about it. Yep. But it's just like, that. that's how it happened? Yep. <laughs> just, I think it, that was a bit that caught me, like, I knew something was going to go awry with the CO2 thing. So they have these harpoons that have CO2 cartridges in them. So when you poke the tip of the harpoon into something, it floods the tip of it with CO2 and makes what, you know, expands and explodes whatever it punctures. Did anybody else even begin to theorize why the hell you would need one of those? No clue. I assume <laughs> they say it's for sharks or something like Puffer that. Pufferfish. But yeah, it's, it, was, it was for, they say it's for sharks. Okay, okay. I missed that part. <laughs> I'm just so laughing at Pufferfish. <laughs> Let me help you with that. <laughs> Well, puffer fish is already expanded. Imagine hitting it with one of those, man. That's that's the that's the 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 backup 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 escape plan. So you punch one of those in the stuffer fish, and just grab, and you rise that shit up. 
and yeah, the kill relating to that is just, so yeah, Snyder, Miguel Ferris character has one of those, the boss backs into it inadvertently and his chest explodes and it's just a riot. Before that, in between that is Matt McCoy's death and after that, Nia Peoples dies. Yep. Again, not Daryl's fault. All we see is she's standing on top of something screaming and one of Daryl's tentacles knocks her off a table and then we just see red in the water. But again, not Daryl's fault. We know he's clumsy. He bumps into things for the first half of this movie. You know, that whole place is wrecked. She may have impaled herself on something. Yeah. It's, <laughs> there's human failure all over this place. The, the captain's death and Bursiaga's death confirms this. It's just... <laughs> Oh, it does bear mentioning that we never even meet Daryl until well after an hour into the film. Yeah, in like Over an hour and 25-minute movie, yeah. and he shows up at like one hour and five. Yeah, it's like ridiculous. That. Because apparently uh, Sean Cunningham mentions in this podcast with Mick Garris that they knew going in, like everyone who's made movies post-Jaws knows about the problems they had making Jaws and all the problems they ran into with the shark, and you want to try and avoid those things. And apparently he mentions they made the monster in this out of foam, and they were talking about how great it looks. And then they put it in water, and the shit sank. <laughs> and he's like, well, we have a problem. <laughs> so that could explain some of Daryl's infrequent appearances. <laughs> I, you know, it, it kind of works in the building tension. Well, theoretically, building tension. In paper. Yeah. On, in, paper on paper, yes. But it also, it just felt like a budget choice. Mm -hmm. It's like, we've got nine bucks. Do we really want to spend it on a giant crab monster? Well, we can just as eagerly have Miguel Ferrer kill the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it leads towards them, again... It's a horror movie for sure. It yes. felt more like a survival film yeah. than it did because, again, as we keep talking about, is that the monster isn't really the problem. No, you know, and it, it doesn't. It doesn't go so far as to try and make the point. You know, humans are the real monsters. It's, it's a catalyst. It throws things into motion, and it does its fair share of wrecking mm. some stuff towards the end. But it, it's you're right. It's the people that are the biggest problem. And it's it's funny. So well, well, let's talk about the end of the movie then. Where they rise to the surface after blowing up the Deep Star Six. The yeah, there's one more kill before this, which is Norris, the Doctor, who... Oh, right, again, right, right, Well, A, her speech before this is about... Um, she's speaking with the other characters, and she says, When this is over, do you want to come visit me on my farm in New Hampshire? In New Hampshire. Sure. <laughs> so the character's literally telling us she's about to go live on a farm, or she'll be happier. So she's really foreshadowing her death here. In New Hampshire. Um, who the hell has farms in New Hampshire? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess they make potatoes there. I don't know. But real, real quick, what kind of escape pod floods the chamber it's connected to when it launches? Beats the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> the no survivors kind. <laughs> so, and at this point in the movie, McBride has gone off to the other wing of the ship or the other wing of the station to I think it's to get something back up and running so they can depressurize the cabin. And at that point, they hear a knock at the door. It's literally just. A single yeah. knock on the door, and Norris' response anything. is, it must be McBride. And then they open the door, and, <laughs> and so Daryl literally comes in like the land shark in SNL. <laughs> I need to address that real quick. By all means. So when we first see Daryl, he comes in through the hatch, he's taken out, like he's, he's halved the one guy, and they've trapped him in that room. Mm -hmm. Then they do some stuff in room B, the one next to it, but when there's a knock at the door, that's room C. Yep. There's a whole other room between the two of them, and at no point whatsoever do they establish that Daryl has moved out of his room. Nope. Not to mention, he really has no reason to. He's kind of like, you know, just kind of stuck in that, like, death aquarium of that first room. Yep. It, there's zero reason. <laughs> death aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> there's zero reason why he should have been able to get to where they were. It was pointless. 
I'm sorry. It was, it was well, maybe he can face through walls too instead of just growing and shrinking. Mm-hmm. But he could have been that he shrank down to his normal crab ass size, <laughs> you know, eating plankton like a normal crab, and then just went through the tunnels and then grew up again. Because again, you know, Chuck. Nothing about that thing's size or movement makes any sense. You're absolutely right, though. She impatiently opens the door, causing their own problems. Yeah, Daryl wasn't trying to get in there. There's nope. a POV shot. Again, he's clumsy. He literally bumps into the door once. <laughs> they assume it must be McBride Let's coming back in. the way he came. Instead of the other way. Which he doesn't in the end. He comes in through the other door. And so Norris's response to Daryl coming in is to activate a defibrillator. In a flooded room. <laughs> Wonder how that And works. even before she electrocutes herself, she's actively shocking Daryl, which again seems incredibly unwise. <laughs> and again, not Daryl's fault. <laughs> so they they escape Deep Star Six and then they blow it up. Well, first they have to decompress. All right. So they spend a significant chunk of time waiting for the pod to actually decompress before it rises up. Which I always thought was counterintuitive. I mean if they're slowly decompressing this pod, doesn't that like structurally lend itself to implosion? Like, uh, wouldn't you want it to like know. rise up and then like decompress up there? I don't know. Well, I, I, I don't know much about it. I know in Cut Into the Abyss yeah, they come down, spend eight hours in the chamber to compress right, mm-hmm. and then they go into the, the chamber to decompress for like a long time and then go over, they go up and then decompress for a long time in those chambers. Right. So the fact that they kind of fall asleep on each other in this makes sense for it to take a while, yeah. but I don't I don't know enough about the physics. All right. So then they they go topside. Yes. And it's even dumber than you would expect. <laughs> they yeah. So they they come. I forget exactly the sequence. They come out on the top. And they put like, out the inflatable raft, and that you get that matte painting. Yes, I'm glad <laughs> someone else brought that up. That's like. They surfaced on the set of the ending of the Truman Show. Yeah. <laughs> where there's the scene that's painted on the wall. <laughs> I was like, whoa, Matt painting. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, you know. <laughs> so they, they get up there, and then, you know, obviously the crab monster jumps out at him like Jason and... Or Jason... Yeah, Jason and the first yeah Friday the 13th. Which yep. I take issue with, because this thing has been shot, air harpoons stabbed, electrocuted... And now it has survived a reactor burst. All right. So looking no worse for wear. Because it was definitely on the station when it blew up. Well, they right. guess maybe not necessarily because they decompressed for a long time. And it then could, they like, they could have left and then followed them up eight hours later. Yeah, But I mean, like for starters, it's surviving at all is questionable. But then there's the fact that it just like chased. The- okay. So there's a couple problems with this. One, they decompressed. It didn't. It should mm-hmm. it should totally have burst the hell open when it, when it hit, by the time it hit the surface. And then there's the fact that we've established early in this film that this thing is fast. I mean, mm-hmm. it is faster than what they're driving. It is faster than anything they have down there. So this thing, you know, they come up in the escape pod. It somehow knows where they're going, is able to track them, but can't seem to get to them quickly before they hit the surface. And even after they hit the surface, they're up for like, like a minute or two, just kind of putzing it around. Like, I mean, it's like, what is this thing doing? Well, they postulate it's attracted to light. So when they get to the surface, they're obviously the brightest things on the surface. So it's yes. easy to find them. <laughs> but even if that's true, it should have gotten to them instantly. It can't the possibly be true. The surface, and there's, it's, it makes no sense. Well, it Nothing also works. had to wait for them to decompress. So it took them a little while. You know. <laughs> it's, 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 incredible it sense, it's an incredible sense of smell when it gets up there. Oh. But then also, it survived a nuclear blast and they kill it with fire. Gonna dump some fuel in this thing and set it on fire. 
<laughs> now I'm no scientist. <laughs> but I'm going to go. But all these people in the movie are. <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and say that if you nuke a crab underwater, that's more powerful than setting it on a gas fire on the surface. I don't know. Again, not a scientist. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing good with the ending. It's it's just. So rushed and pointless yep. and cheap. And somehow still makes more sense than the end of Leviathan. <laughs> so, all right. So, like, look, I liked this movie. It was entertaining. It was fun the yes. whole way through. It's goofy. Matt McCoy, the look on his face was probably the same one I had while watching this entire film. <laughs> like, this is dumb fun. Uh, I wasn't as high off my tits as whatever he was, but... For um, its budget, I really love the creature design. I thought it was at least well thought out, if not enough time put into it. Yeah, it was an interesting look. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. The size was a problem, but I like the idea that like, we're going to make an actual crustacean. We're going to have this kind of mandible maw, which is neat. I like the, the way they did the eyes. You know, it, it's. I felt that other than the size concerns, which were sloppy for the sets and what they were doing, I thought it was a neat looking creature. I didn't care at all about the creature. That was my, my really, what I took away from this movie is that the creature was just a sort of another natural obstacle in their quest to defeat Miguel Ferrer's stupidity. <laughs> Which is an accurate description of the film. And they lost badly to Miguel Ferrer's stupidity. That's, that's really the moral of this story is, is don't blow up underground caverns with a nuke. When your buddies are in there, you don't really know what happened to them. And you're just doing it because you're on a clock to set an underwater missile silo, which doesn't make any sense to begin with. <laughs> they have these things on fucking submarines so that they're not in one spot. I get that this is the future, but it seems like in the future you would have less trouble blowing up an underwater stationary, some, you know, undefensible <laughs> missile platform than a submarine. So this is the 100 years in the future, whatever it was supposed to be, and the technology was dumber. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe, we're, maybe uh, what we're missing here is this is actually like the uh, uh, movie stands beside Waterworld. Like, there is no land. You have to have your missile bases on the, on the ocean floor now. <laughs> well, it would make sense based on the ending, because the final shot is after they've burned Daryl up, is them paddling, and there is no land in sight. <laughs> nope. It's like, they're going to be paddling for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So the Jaws ended. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're just dead. Like, they survived that crab to die to exposure. One of them is going to eat the other one before that's done. It's I mean, you, when we come back to the fuel, we set it on fire. It is one hundred percent the jaws ending. It's I expected him to like you know light it on fire and go you know say cheese you <laughs> you son of a bitch, <laughs> yeah. which we get in Leviathan. Yes. That immediately became Contiki yeah. because they're done. <laughs> Nobody knows that they survived. Everybody thinks they're dead. But still, a fun movie. It was enjoyable. It's a goofy horror survival film with fun actors and actresses mm -hmm. and just it's just fun it's a fun movie i think it's an somewhat underwhelming attempt at pulpy fun not bad underwhelming with a glorious 15 minute stretch <laughs> in the final third so that that i do think makes the movie worth watching mm -hmm. which kind of brings us to the next one that came out a few months later mm -hmm. and is i would say a more traditional horror movie yes. than deep star six and all it 
It gets pinned again as being an alien Which is incorrect. It's a thing ripoff. It's 100% the thing. And it's not that hard to point that out. And I think the reviewers are just lazy by calling it alien and not thing, which is distinctly a thing ripoff. It's again, it's easier It might as well have Wilfred Brimley. I think it was just easier for them, again, to associate the ocean with space, and they just couldn't get off that. There's no excuse for it. But I mean, snow is like the ocean. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Snow is like the ocean. I mean, even Deep Star 6 doesn't feel much like alien no you know they don't go and try to rescue the crab you know for the government no or anything like that it's just a survival thing against a scary monster but in the case is the scary monster is miguel ferrer so (laughs) (laughs) who i guess is playing the part of of what is it an alien nurse what's the the cyborg's name in the first one oh you know um oh gosh ian holmes character Yep. Uh, mother, the mother's the, mother's the voice of the, the sister. That's right. yeah. the, uh, you know, I, I just watched Alien oh to see God, if these I'm movies <laughs> really compare to this. Whatever, the cyborg in the first Alien where it's revealed that he's, you know, he's a robot. You know, if they had revealed Miguel Ferrer as a robot, shit, yeah, Alien ripoff. But no, he was just dumb. <laughs> yep. You know, he was the game over man from Aliens 2. I, I just think it's a lazy comparison for the very fundamental of scary monster trapped environment. You know, end of days, and you're like oil workers or some shit, because whether they're miners and alien. So uh, there's similarities, but the movies don't really function the same way. I mean, Alien is distinctly a horror movie. Yes, I think it holds up a little closer with Leviathan than it does Deep Star. Leviathan is very much the thing, but also Leviathan is somewhat similar to Alien and Aliens in the way it's shot. In terms of the color palette and the lighting, that's fair. there's a little bit more there. We'll say though that's uh, more of a cinematography. Uh, yeah, than so not yeah, so not theme. not not structurally, but I said, but there's there's overtones in that sense, and there's also a little bit more overtones in the script for this, which we'll get into in a little bit. All right, so Leviathan came out a few months later. It's a little bit different in that it gives you a date when it starts, and there's whale song in the credits. But beyond that, it's really kind of the same film. <laughs> Now, it really in a had, lot of ways. I mean, other than it being rushed, there's no reason why this should have been as... This is by far my, the, the one that made me the most angry. Hmm, really? Yeah. Like, the last 20 minutes, it's just... It's me going, no, no, no. <laughs> just, <laughs> it's, just left and right, pissed to the film going, all right, they stretched some things, and they, they took some, you know, some things for granted in the other films. This one's just like, there's no way that could work. No, that's wrong. Just, just no. It also has the weirdest casting. Of all of them. But it's got a great cast. Peter Weller, Daniel Stern, Ernie Hudson, Hector Elizondo. I mean, this is like my childhood all-stars right yeah, here. They're, they're, all, <laughs> they're all great great actors in it. I mean, I love it, but it's weird. So, like, Peter Weller is a geologist who doesn't really want to be there. So he's kind of the nice guy scientist type, which is not what I think of from Peter Weller. But he's not even. He's like he's, he's middle management. He's not even haunted in this. He's just and Peter Weller has to play haunted because you look at that guy. I mean, he was born and they were instead of thinking he looked like uh, Churchill, they were like, this guy has demons. You know? <laughs> yeah. And in the script for it, it makes it a little more clear that he's on like the corporate career path. But they also yep. make a reference to his youth and his dashing good looks, which is another thing. It was like that doesn't quite. <laughs> I'm saying Peter Weller's not a handsome man, but it, the description of him in the script doesn't quite line up the end cast. But right. also Daniel Stern as the sarcastic bad boy. Six pack. <laughs> Named Six Pack. Daniel Stern. <laughs> He's the guy who wasn't manly enough to stand up to what? Oh, God. I, the name shot out of my head. The uh, What's the movie where they want to be cowboys? City Slickers? City Slickers. Wow, not the reference I was expecting. Wow. He he's not he's like the, the least manly guy in City Slickers. 
Whereas in Leviathan, he's supposed to be kind of the the tough roguish guy. The lech. It just doesn't work at all. But every like, I mean, I like everybody in it. Ernie Hudson is clearly the best part of this movie by a couple of touchdowns. Let, let's let's just throw some quick facts out here. I mean, it's so you had that cast. It's directed by the director of Rambo Two. Yeah, George it's, P. Cosmatos, who yeah. did Rambo: First Blood Part Two and Cobra. Right. And it's well, that's re- why why John and what's his face Senna John, I forget his Richard name. Krenna Richard Krenna is the doctor because yeah. he was he's Colonel Troutman in yep, Rambo, yep. right? Yeah. But that's also like written from the guys who brought you Blade Runner, Lady Hawk, Unforgiven, Twelve Monkeys, produced by the same guys who brought you Predator, Die Hard, my personal favorite Night of the Creeps, but that's not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Field of Dreams, Waterworld, The Good Hellboy, and it, it, this. There's no reason why this should have made me so angry with the people involved with this. There's a lot of polish on every level with this. We got this is our second Jerry Goldsmith score. The DP on this is Alec Thompson, who did Excalibur, Labyrinth, would later go on to do Alien Three. He's just a phenomenal DP. There's so much. Ron Cobb was the production designer. Yeah, and and speaking of the screenplay for this, so going in, Stan Winston did the creature effects for Christ's sake. Stan Winston and with Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis. Yep. So going into this, I knew I had seen either Deep Star 6 or Leviathan. I couldn't remember which one, and possibly both. And it turned out it was Leviathan, and I couldn't remember why. But it's because of David Webb Peebles. is the guy who did the rewrites on Blade Runner. Later on, he did 12 Monkeys. He did a, a kind of a lesser-known film, which I really loved but need to revisit, called Hero. And then also he wrote the one plane of The one? Uh, yeah, the one with Dustin Hoffman. With Dustin and, Hoffman? And, that yeah. was a good movie. I yes, it was. It's, it's one of those kind of been lost to time that I want to revisit. But I really, really liked it when it came out. And he did. Dustin uh, Hoffman would have been a better tough guy than Daniel Stern. By a lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he also, he wrote Unforgiven, which is one of my absolute favorite movies. So I specifically watched Leviathan at one point where I was going through his entire filmography. Like he directed one movie called The Blood of Heroes, which is like a post-apocalyptic sports movie with Rugger Hauer. So that so was I, the one that blew my mind when I saw that the same guy who wrote this wrote Unforgiven because yep. I, I, I I even was saying it out loud and it doesn't <laughs> make sense to me. So wrote the first draft of it. Then they brought in a guy named Jeb Stewart who has good credentials. He did the one of the the original drafter of Die Hard. He was brought in to do rewrites. So there was um, so real quick while we're on David Webb Peebles, there was I did find one interview with him talking about it, which he did with uh, ThatShelf.com which they're talking about the original script, and they ask him, so, so what was it like working on Leviathan? And he says, well, parentheses, long pause and a sigh. Boy, that was not a happy experience for me. <laughs> it didn't work out at all or in any way like I intended it to. I only watched the film for the first time a couple of years ago, and all I saw were the things that I screwed up and the things that other people had screwed up. It's not something I'm too proud of. I mean, I worked hard, but the assignment from the studio was to simply write Alien, but underwater. When I wrote the script... And he <laughs> said, nah, fuck you, I'm writing the thing. <laughs> Apparently. Well, Jeb Stewart apparently said, no, we're doing the thing. He goes on to say, when I wrote it, the script had them opening a bottle they found that had some dried up insects in it that suddenly came alive. In this, even more than an alien, the creatures were never these big monsters. They were tiny, almost invisible things that got inside of people. It was a very scary idea, but I was discouraged from writing it the way it ended up on screen. Wait, you're saying he tried to write the Leviathan as the bay? Yep. Pretty much. (laughs) That ties things together nicely, doesn't it? (laughs) He tried to. Full circle. And then, I don't know how to sing it. (laughs) And then, yeah, so, and then he ends it with just by saying, I had a different vision of what it was. If some people think the film is good, then I'm glad it's good. But I don't think very much of it, uh, I don't think of it very much as mine, is how he ends it. So it it did start off as something kind of different. And then it seems like it's a case of Jeb Stewart was brought in and it was kind of a Ridley Scottish situation with George P. Cosmatos, where the director very much 
brought someone in and said, do what I tell you. And that's kind of what the rewrites were. Okay. So who wrote the line, what did you, trip on the tit? Oh, go suck on a shrimp. Uh, the trip on the tit <laughs> part is in the script. So I, I read, what I was hoping to find was the David Webb Peebles draft before the rewrites were done. I didn't find that. I found a draft after Jeff Stewart came on and did it, which there's not a lot that's different, but there's a couple bits. But no, the trip on the tit line is in the script. The retort is not. Go suck on a shrimp. Like, I had to rewind it a couple of times to make sure that's what she said. But yeah. Oh, no, go. here it is. Yeah, so it's, he says, go um, trip on a tit, and Willie retorts, keep your pants on, six-pack. I promise you'll be inside before Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood comes on. That became, go suck on a shrimp, six-pack. Well, now I'm angry at the movie. <laughs> All right, so early in the film, they're all working out in the water. Which, if I recall, uh, this one did not use underwater tank scenes. They instead did this was dry, dry for wet, yeah, and and they tried to make it look as realistic as possible with what they were doing. Yeah, Deep which Star did it, made it look like they they filmed it in a fish tank. Yep, with no water. In Correct. It. <laughs> yeah, they did do some. I listened to an interview that uh, Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis, who worked under Stan Winston, did, and one of the things they did for the sets, like they built when they designed the suits that they walk in, they had basically dust built into the boots that would shoot out any time they took a step. These plumes of dust would come up, so it would look like silt kicking up. So there was an effort done to try and make it look somewhat authentic. Yeah, and it, it opens with them, I mean, they're mining silver. No, yep. Nothing anybody ever does looks like mining, but, and the one character's, like, almost dies from decompression, almost dies from decompression or Apparently something. they have some rebreathers and actually pulls its oxygen from the wa- surrounding water is the guess I'm getting. Yeah. Which right off the bat makes no sense because you're that deep. The oxygen levels are low. But apparently if your rebreather doesn't work, there's a chance of your suit imploding. Yep. It's, it's like, which they, like the science behind that is hurting my but brain. But they can't <laughs> tell from the control room that's monitoring all their Spidostine. You know, I'm having this problem. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> what? And where's the doc? Oh, the doc's not here. Well, we need him in here, and everybody gets pissed that he's not there. But well, what's he going to do? Let me try some stuff. I'll, you know what? I'll keep fiddling around. You just rush him in, which is the solution. Yep. <laughs> they and just they, rush him Well, they in. say, well, let's do this. And they say, oh, no, definitely don't do that. But really, all they keep doing is walking in. Yes. Yep. At this pace they were doing before. Yep. <laughs> They're not moving any faster. And the indicator that kicks off this problem to DeJesus in his, his display inside That's his helmet. Play is a red skull and crossbones that's flashing. <laughs> so they're not subtle about it. It was like, hey, the you're about to die indicator is going on. <laughs> you think that's a problem? Yeah, it's... Yeah, I, this is the only one I watched twice. Okay. Because it was the first one I watched really? for this podcast. Well, yeah, it was the first one I watched, and I wanted it to be more fresh in my mind. Why would you do that to yourself? Well... <laughs> oh, God, I watched them all like three times. That's fair. That's well, because I had, I had split it. I, when I watched it the first time, I was well, I watched about half of it, fell asleep, and then I watched the rest of it in the morning. And I wanted to watch it all the way through to see if that made That's it fair. better. It Spoilers, happened. didn't. <laughs> but I, I didn't hate it. Like, I, I again, a lot of it had to do with Ernie Hudson just being kind of awesome Ernie Hudson in this. You know, even when, when they check him later on for the skin condition, he's like, the only skin condition I see is whiteness white <laughs> for white people. I was like, you tell him, Ernie. <laughs> what, what I found amusing about this film is, like, the one thing they seem to go hardcore doing their best to try to be as authentic as possible is the display of corporate America. Oh, yes. So, like, how middle management works, uh, how they talk to the executive branch, how the 
the structure of the workers works. You got the one try hard. You got the one who's always complaining. You know, it's they and hell, Peter Willow pulls out the one minute manager at one point to yes. try to deal with it's, the situation going on. One, one of the more amusing gags, which is in the script. Yeah, I'm like, I'm watching this whole thing. I'm like, wow, I someone worked at the cubicle farm. I can feel this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we have Peter Weller reporting to the Triassianic company, and the rep he deals with is Meg Foster. Yep. Who plays a character by the name of Martin in this, who's the corporate representative, and who is a man in the script. So that was a nice bit of switching up with the casting. That's nice. And I love Meg Foster. Uh, she's... <laughs> You know, she'd just been in a lot of films growing up. And, like, one of the first things I saw her in, she was in Masters of the Universe. She was evil. Yes. She was in They Live and all this stuff. And she plays the kind of faux nice but completely insidious corporate representative. And she's just doing everything. All her conversations with Peter Weller are in that Meg Fostery voice. And the, just the whole movie got me thinking. Is, if Peter Weller is like, man, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to have your performance review done by, the, like, Meg Foster operating at maximum sultry like she is in this movie? Like, you just sit down every year and it's, But although there may be room for improvement on your time management skills, you've more than made up for it with your demonstration of team spirit. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Your participation in Pizza and Pajama Fridays did not go unnoticed. Although I would like to proceed with your... Although I would like to proceed with your 0.25% raise effective immediately, unfortunately, we're experiencing an issue with our new payroll system. (laughs) I assure you, this is a temporary issue only. I expect it to be resolved within 48 hours. uh, If you want to do more of these shows, you have to not kill me during the (laughs) Well, also, you have to do the next episode as Meg Foster. The whole episode. What I'm what I'm dreading is when we get to the Clyde Barker episode. Now I have to do the entire episode like this. <laughs> gargling asphalt again? No, but, it's my Clyde Barker. Impression. By the time we get to Lord of Illusions, I just sound like this. <laughs> well, it's funny because she's also essentially the only villain in this. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, even when the monster shows up, it's just monstery it's not you know targeted or anything like that it's an accident it's not like an evil presence or anything like that but she does a good job if even if it's a little over the top it's very over the top but it's 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 one of the more fun elements again she's at everything she does is just at max sultry and it's amusing the one thing it was missing was there's the scene where peter weller's constantly going to her for advice and to report on things and she's constantly pushing back the deadline and giving him bullshit about you know how they can't get to him and whatnot which is annoying because one of the first things ernie hudson's character does is check the weather yep yep. and then she says (laughs) because he hates waves yeah (laughs) and then she says there's a hurricane coming and everybody's like oh well okay must be true (laughs) but i was bummed there was no sequence like peter weller when he's reporting on the fact that they've had actual deaths there's one line where he says to her he said what are you talking about it's already killed one man and I was really bummed her was, we prefer the term reduction in force. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come back to uh, Daniel Stern real quick. Oh, so we have to. So you have your complaints about how, you know, he's just not the right person for this character. Although I will say the masturbation scene was believable. True. <laughs> this but, is our rather fawning over pornography sequence. But, and, uh, but he's also like this, like, ridiculously toxic presence. Everything he does is just grating, like. Everyone should just be like waking in the morning and hitting him in the head to keep him unconscious till the next day. You know, he's like been <laughs> 87 days under the sea, and all he does is like be overly lecherous, sticks random animals in places where people find them unexpectedly, constantly just ribbon. Like, this man would not survive 
stuck in a tin can for 87 days with these people. It makes the... Oh, no, man. at least one of the women would have killed him. Yes. Stab him right in the eye. He's basically final stage Snyder, but without, like, the excuse of having been down too long. He's just... Yep. He's just awful. He's just toxic and destructive. Yeah. I, it's, it's an endless train of crap. And it's just so <laughs> hard to buy from, from Daniel Stern. I just... He's just such a gawky kind of, you know... Goofball. It's like if they cast Larry David in the part. It's not that far from it. It's just, I just couldn't buy almost anything he did. You know, except the part, you know, where he's a little bit lecherous and the masturbation scene. Because that, you know, you get from a beta male goon like that. Yeah, but otherwise he's just pure, like, sand up in your groin type, you know, obnoxious. Yeah. And much like Snyder, he's the person who leads the characters to their doom because he's the person who, while out on a mission, stumbles on the sunken Russian submarine. And brings the plunder on board. And by the way, here that we was go. Sloppy. All right. <laughs> so they're like, we're gonna go to this dig site where we've been working at for a while. But you know, there's this twenty, this ridge twenty feet away. Oops, we're gonna fall off of it. And look, there's a goddamn ship here, twenty feet away. How do we never notice this? The three months we've been down here. I mean, it's <laughs> well, they say they never explored the ridge. But my bigger problem—it wasn't that... that deep or far. Well, right. But my biggest problem with that. Is they keep asking him, you know, where'd he go? What's it? And he's just not talking. It's kind of like saying, I don't explore my neighbor's backyard, but oh, look, a ziggurat. <laughs> I haven't seen that in three months. <laughs> but literally, literally, none of that scene makes sense. So they're out no. there as punishment, you know, for, for him being an asshole and her retaliating. It's like, ah, you both should go out there and do this. Then he falls off and then apparently turns off his lights mm-hmm. and wanders away even though they have a limited amount of oxygen. And finally he finds his boat, goes on it, somehow finds a safe, lifts it up, carries it out, jump scares her after the, the moray eel jump scares at her. Mm-hmm. And then they walk back even though there's, you know, they walk back from this place that's apparently less than five minutes away because she only has five minutes of air left. Yep. yep. It's got to be close. It's got to yeah. be close in five minutes. But oh, look, a ship. But we, saw, <laughs> but we also saw how slow they walked at the beginning. So they're walking at this, this incredibly slow pace where they cover over the four or five minute sequence in the beginning that it takes to, to cover 15 feet. It takes five minutes under duress, but they get five minutes to, to just somehow get back. It's one of those movies, it's, it's much like Deep Rising, where if you think about anything for more than 30 seconds, it doesn't work. Nope. And this is one of the few alien comparisons I can make. Is his distress call falling into the ridge, dragging them to a lost crash ship, very mm. similar to them finding the uh, the alien ship in, in yeah, alien. the space jockey sequence. But yeah. that's where it ends because the minute they get in the ship, it's the thing again. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know him him stealing the the flask and then later on drinking it. I mean, maybe it's just me, and you know I used to like vodka, but are you drinking underwater? Dead ship vodka? To be fair, it's a sealed container that was in a sealed safe on a Russian boat. I mean, it probably And it's Daniel fine. Stern. It's Daniel, <laughs> and he's Daniel Stern. We've established he's a guy who just does not give a shit. Yeah. But the other lady is smart. Yeah, but if he drank it and didn't die. But she didn't know that. They drink it at the same time. No, no. When she showed up to him, he had already had some. True. In his masturbation bunk. Where he did everything but grab tissues and and, <laughs> and cream in the one scene where he's walking in, a, where he's just walking around, basically saying, "Yep, I'm going to masturbate." He even has a coffee mug that's a boob. Yeah, 
I very much feel like she was of the opinion that she would have slept with him, but he was just too much. Like it every, comes off that way. Yeah, their, their interactions are very much like you know if you just weren't this much of an asshole, maybe. <laughs> yep. Even so, if I found a ship with a whale skeleton outside of it, I'd think about whether I'm drinking whale skeleton vodka. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. It, it was... I've been more concerned with everything else that was in that safe. I mean, they come up with like how many folders of deceased, 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 deceased. I mean, it's like it's like six oh, yeah. or seven. Everyone's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, what a shame. And then they move on. I'm like, no, like they didn't fill these forms out after the ship sank. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the bits where th- this film seems to have a bit of a warring tone more so than Deep Star Six because there's bits where this movie seems like it's trying to deliberately be schlocky. Yes, like that bit where they pull out. You know, he pulls out the first folder from the Russian safe and says it's the file folder and says deceased, and all of a sudden there's this big like schlocky string music cue and is deceased, deceased, deceased. And so there's times where it seems like it's it's being more playful, but not necessarily completely successful at it. And then there's other times where it's playing it more straight and like it's trying to go for that more somber alien tone. So that's a weird thing about Leviathan is this kind of tonal mishmash it's got. Yeah, and then apparently the safes, you know, where they go to steal the vodka that he's replaced with water because haha is his, was his social security number. Yeah. They even say it. Who would make the social security number their, their code? <laughs> in the script, it was the first script, it was his birthday rather than the social. That makes more sense. Yeah. And yeah, there's also a sequence added where he's on his way back and they send the Hector Alexander character out to like buy time and like bullshit him in the hallway. And so it, that sequence makes a little more sense in the script. One, one of my favorite parts, actually, I remember like, I liked it when I was a kid, I like it now. I don't know why, is in the safe is also the tape, the videotape of the captain's log. And the one entry they watch is him going, you know, all the crew are getting sick. I'm not entirely sure what's going on. I'm not sure what, you know, what we're going to do. And then he cuts the tape just as the door starts to slowly open. It was like a little subtle yep. touch of like not showing you was better. Like in my head, yeah. I was just filling in this gap of like the, the terrible things are about to happen to that captain. And I thought it worked really well. That's one of my favorite sequences in the film. There's that bit, which is actually creepy. And then there's the bit following that where he's going over how he thinks that the, the whole... If you look at the hole in the hall, it was blown open. It was a torpedo, and it was thinks that's where they established the notion that it was deliberately sunk. And there's a really nice dramatic music cue from Jerry Goldsmith during that bit. There's a real uh, string cue which I really, really dug in that. So that's one of the few segments of the movie that I really grouped on. Mm-hmm. And also, it's one of those things that kind of establishes Doc a little bit as more than just you know this absent-minded yeah. professor kind of thing. Like he's actually useful in that. He he's has, got some substance. From that point on, they show he kind of cares more, and then they imply he's got this. This dark backstory. Yeah. And they never really get too much into it, but. Yeah, no, he, they play that up more in the finish. So in the script, it's, he has less to do. There's still the whole thing about the doc being absent, but a lot of his dialogue and stuff like that is, is added for the finished film, particularly the weird ass, I could have been a contender speech that he gives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> where he has his little on the waterfront. So since Richard Crenna worked with George B. Cosmatos before on Rambo, it really does kind of feel like I was wanting to throw your buddy Richie uh, some some more lines here and, and beef my part up a bit because he's really I mean he's he's present but yeah he's much more significant in the finished film than originally on paper. Yeah, so you get to this point that set a lot of time sort of setting up the back half of this film yep. where things go and but once it happens, it happens pretty quick. Yeah, it's at the thirty-seven minute mark where the vodka Daniel Stern has drank has start kicking in. It is not just vodka. It's clearly some sort of experimental drug or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it almost immediately kills him. 
per se. It does not take long. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's dead within up. hours. Yeah. 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 He, he drinks it. They say is a hangover. Everybody else goes, or Peter Weller and everybody goes out to finish their mining, come back, and he's dead. Yep. You get the nasty rash is the only thing you really see. Next thing you see is him under a blanket. In the quarantine room with no lock on the door. Yeah. yeah. Where the door swings on the hinge every time somebody walks through it. Yeah, when they get back from the mission and Sixpack has died and the doc hands Peter Weller a gauze mask to send him in there to take a look. And Peter Weller says, you know, I'm not a doctor. And he says, for this, you don't need to be. And it's like, well, apparently you don't need a suit or anything. You can't be that concerned over mm-hmm. the contagion element of this because he just gives him a gauze mask. And it, he's like, get in there. It killed him in eight hours. Yep. You should be like incinerating that body. Go in there and gawk at it. Come on. It's gross. Do it. And Touch then, it. And, and then Peter <laughs> Weller is consistently... Like, he he just doesn't want to deal with it. He, mm. You know, he keeps, you know, I don't care if they got jungle flu or whatever. First of all, you're underwater. They're Russians. Where does the jungle in any way come into this? <laughs> yeah. You know, clearly this is, you know, water flu or something. Come on. <laughs> but, yeah, they, they don't do anything to contain it. They leave, you know, him in there, and then they go and check everybody except the other woman. And then instead of checking her, they'd go to, to talk to uh, the company. Martin, yeah. Yes, Foster. Martin. And then when they finally get around to her, she's already, she's topped herself. Yeah, she cause went she, and, she saw what happened to Daniel Stern. She wanted nothing to do with that. So she goes and slits her wrist in the shower. Yeah. yeah. Which, I like that one thing. She comes in, it was either her or Ernie Hudson that came in to check on him or just talk at him. Ernie Hudson goes in first. Yes. Yeah. Ernie Hudson goes in and it was so unnerving because at this point we've established he's dead and Ernie Hudson is talking to him and then the legs kind of like shift. And it was just, that was just so creepy. It was just like that, that moment of, oh, that shouldn't be happening. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. But that part was really great and worth noting. When she comes in to check on him, you actually see, like, I don't know if it was an arm or a leg, some mutated part of him is dangling off the side of the of the table he's on. I forget about the leg. The bit she sees is the wrist. His wrist is exposed from his hand coming out. Yep. She sees that getting all gooey in it. Yeah. And yeah. that's when she's commenting, you know, her hair's falling out and she sees what happened to him. And then she goes and slits her wrist in the shower, which the rest of the crew take surprisingly well, <laughs> considering not only have they lost one crew member to a skin rash in eight hours, but now their their other crew members committed impromptu suicide. Ah, like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> it's also, I think, by the time she commits suicide, they've said the words genetic alteration four times. Uh, they're <laughs> In the first of what is a tsunami of line genetic alteration and martin has the line where she says what did you say generic alteration like, genetic <laughs> <laughs> yeah it really takes a i once once the actual monster stuff starts getting yeah. introduced it really just takes a it, it takes half the film to get there yeah but and, then it goes yeah but even then i just i didn't like it as much it was kind of like deep star six is once the monster shows up everything isn't kind of as good yeah. well we got a few monsters in this we, we yes. got three so we got our first monster, which is after Bo dies and they put her body in the morgue, she fuses with the body of Sixpack. So we have monster A, which is Bo Pack. Um, which is very reminiscent of the thing. Yep, extremely. And then there's DeJesus monsters out all on his own. And then there's also Cobb and Doc end up fusing together. Yep. So, yeah. So, all right. So when when they, they fuse together the first time and they're like, all right, well, we're, let's get rid of them. Let's just put them out in airlock. And they're walking and they start to squirm. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, they, by this point, they put them down, unzip it, they see what the awfulness is, and then they keep going, and, and that's when Cobb gets Gets slashed, slashed across the chest, yep. It's one of those, you know, they're trying to keep it secret from the rest of the crewmen, but you're putting out one body, two people are dead. At some point, you could just say, look, this is some fucked up crap, but they're they're worried about causing a panic. 
Why? There's like six people, and the, <laughs> and the hothead is one of the dead ones. Yep. So, yeah. like, so much of this movie could, in fact, the entirety of this movie could have been avoided if they had just said, yeah, look, creepy ass shit, we're gonna get rid of it, and then we're gonna go to hell home. And everybody would have been like, that's creepy ass shit, let's go to hell home. I respected them keeping it quiet when he first died. Once the merging of the two bodies happened, yeah, everyone should have been on board. Yeah, yeah after Bo died, it's like, yeah. But it's also, there's like seven people on this boat, or this, whatever, station. Mining rig. And the two... Jack Seven. The two least stable ones are the ones who are dead. So, like, you're already starting up a couple aces in the hole. You're in good shape. And then, much like, you know, the other ones, the human error stuff starts to kick in, and that's where everything goes south. But anyway, they, they dump these bodies. The, the leg gets cut off. Mm-hmm. It crawls swims around. Off. Swims off. Becomes an eel. Yeah, it... it somehow. It, it, it basically... Very similar to the thing, it's making do with what it's got. So it only has so much organic material, so it fashions itself like kind of an eel body and gets out of that and takes off. Which then gives the doctor quiet time to postulate on all the possible abilities this thing actually has. Again, that <laughs> moment where I'm just going to theorize out loud, but maybe it's everything it has right here in a list. And then it's so it, ridiculous. And then it goes and reverse aliens the Jesus. Yes, I, that's what I wrote down. It's, it's, the, uh, the, it's the opposite of the chestburster. It goes yeah. into him. For reasons passing understanding. Again, it was they, they make mild references to Alien. That's it. They're like, yeah. you know, the chest? We gotta do something with the chest. Well, it's, it's the opposite. Ernie Hudson has the best reaction to any of this in that scene. Oh, yeah. It's like, help me. He's like, peace. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just stay there. I'll, I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> Shuts that fucking door. Yep. He gets the hell out of there. Yeah, he has by far the best lines in this movie. Is that is the bit where they first bust out flamethrowers? Now we're talking turkey. <laughs> no. My, I think my favorite line from him is still when it's after all this stuff has gone down. It's the three of them are left. They're in the control room. When they're, they're talking, talking to like, Martin. Yeah. yeah, Martin. And she goes, you know, you've been through hell. And he goes, go on. Go on. Yeah. Bitch, Bitch, we we're still here. here. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, they've decided it's time to weapon up. And for the most part, this works because they are a mining rig. So they mm-hmm. have these like industrial strength saws. They have these drill bits. And then they have these flamethrowers. <laughs> a lot of like, flamethrowers. Like, lots of these clearly weaponized flamethrowers that are just like, how would that work? I mean, okay. If you had like some sort of welding equipment that worked outside in the water, that's one thing. That's not what this is for. This is clearly a only works in the air flamethrower. Why do you need this on a mining rig? Which is especially something you want in a high oxygen environment. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Because there's no way that that would cause problems. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Oh, and then it goes back to another thing reference where it got to the blood supply. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it got to the blood. It was what happens in the thing. Where it raids the doctor's office. Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I think I missed that twice somehow. There are significantly more thing references than Alien top to bottom. Throughout the entire film, yeah. Although one of the bits in tied in with Alien or or not so is when we actually see the kind of the fully formed creature, it's kind of pale skin and and whatnot. In the script, they frequently refer to every time we see the creature as it being black and scaly. It's constantly black and scaly is how it's described in the script. And obviously, it's something someone went, yeah, that's that's too alieny. Yeah, that no no make it make it pale. <laughs> well, they, they won't be too overt with this. I hey. wish. You know what I wish they'd done? If I was designing the monster, I would have had a bit more patchwork. More like, this is the flesh of, of this person, this is the flesh of that person. It, almost like it doesn't fully uh, homogenize itself. It, it, it takes on what it has. Like the bit with the faces on it, like take that even further. Even further. Or the yeah. mouth yeah. hand. 
Mouth. I like the mouth yeah. hand. I mean, it was a little, a little over the top, but but I I, I love that effect. Well, but they also <laughs> they mentioned. I guess it was either Winston or somebody said that they they wanted to make the monster look kind of fishy. Yes, and th- because they're using like because again, out of nowhere, theorizing they're using like fish biology to try to make people who can breathe underwater. Yeah, I mean, God only knows. I have no idea where they came <laughs> up with all this. But, like, one of the later shots of the monsters, it's got, like, almost a full-on fish head. Yep. Yeah. 100%. With this, like, angler fish jaw built into it. It's almost more like yeah. a deep one at that point. Yeah. yeah. It kind of looked like yeah. a deep one. It's a neat design. It doesn't seem to move particularly well. There's one sequence where Willie is crawling up on a grate, and you see it in the background, and it's kind of just doing this where it's just kind of Wiggling in position, not really moving forward. And it, it seems like it, they had trouble with the mobility on it a bit. Mm-hmm. So it was like nifty to look at in still I, shots, but when it's in motion, it's, it's a little, eh. a lot, a lot of the motion shots were just like the tentacle portions of it dragging across the floor in mm-hmm. a lot of situations. So that, that was about it. Yeah. It just, I it don't was, know. It was big. It was one of my, my things. I liked that. I liked that it was so relatively big. They were using blood to track, to, to bait it. And then they had that encounter in the, uh, in the one room where they, you know, the first time they try to get rid of this thing, they chop the leg off. This time they're trying to get away from the thing, and they crush its head in the elevator. Oh, yeah, towards the ending, yeah. That was nice. Yeah, I just, so much of, like, the end kind of doesn't flow well. I thought it didn't make a lot of sense, anything that anybody does. No. And then, finally, there's three left. Doc and... and yeah, uh, well, Beck, Peter Weller, Willie... Who's Amanda Pays, and then also Jones, which was in the Yeah, they're the ones that was left because the other ones, you know, fused together and became hybrids. And, you know, so finally they get together and they find out that the company has written them off, said they're dead. We lost all these people down there. And then Ernie Hudson takes that moment to say, Welcome to the Union. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing the Russians did too, or parallels when they look Mm -hmm. up the, the Russians sub earlier in the movie and they find out that according to the Russian records, it's still at sea and still on active duty and stuff. So. And then they, they decide, they finally, they get out, and they're going to the surface. Yep. Well, they have to, because it has turned off the air regulators, yeah. which, again, causes implosion. <laughs> Why? Because everything causes implosion. It's, it's... It, air is the only thing keeping them alive. It should be a closed system. <laughs> they're not losing air, all right? It's, <laughs> they just stopped circulating it. It's, I will give you, it's getting warmer. I will give you, oh, I'm getting less oxygen. Not... The whole thing's going to collapse on me. It makes no sense. Are they they breaking the rules? And then it uses... (laughs) (laughs) They're breaking science. But... Science is rules. (laughs) Nick, you're sick of all of you fools. Bashing and smashing and breaking the rules. Patterns are pretext for nitwits and tools. Nicholas knows you're breaking the rules. (laughs) I just want you to know how much I love you. <laughs> so, Hi, Shannon. So it it's using this to learn. It, it, uh, We're gonna the, get eventually just a heavy metal song out of this with Shannon playing guitar in the background yeah, and Eric yeah, doing little bits yeah. <laughs> each room, just slice it together. Scary stuff. The album. <laughs> At some point um, in the beginning, Hector Elizondo's character uh, showed him how he fixed this one machine with a piece of gum, and mm. apparently, it still retains their memories to some degree. And actively attacks that machine so they know where to go to fix the problem. Because mm-hmm. they can hear the rattle again. And so that's when you get some good looks at the thing with all its faces. And like, you even get one where the doctor is, like, the actor is actually in the damn suit. The so Jesus, you can, yeah. So, so you can see his face through it. It says, help me, too. Yes, mm-hmm. as is, it does. At that point forward, I began hating this film. 
<laughs> I mean, but why? Every every line I have after this is just me going. Uh, let, I'm just gonna go through it. I'm gonna go through it. I'm right. excited for this. No said, lie. No way he did electrocute all of them. No way he held that door. No way it didn't infect <laughs> Peter Weller. Suits can't handle decompression. Bullshit. They all have the bends. Bullshit. The Ghost Guard happened to be there. Sharks. Blew up the regenerating monster. That definitely won't be a problem later. No way the executive's on that rig. <laughs> it's just, it's just. I kind of want that to be in the new, redo the poster and be the tagline. No way to the surface. No way out. No way in general. <laughs> just, just no way. But it's everything just, you're in, that's, that's amazing. It, it, the, the one scene, so they're trying to fix their, the re-ray their ore, get to the escape pods, and the damn thing breaks its arm through the wall and grabs him. And literally, just holds just him. Just holds him in place. Just holds him in place. It scratched Hector's character. He just character. wanted a hug. Just wanted a hug. You know, one scratch we've established is enough for this thing to kind of infect you to some degree. But it gets a hold of Peter Weller and it goes, just, 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 just wait there. Just, I just want you to listen to me. <laughs> Look, hurting management is how you get talk. fired. That that monster has union dues. It's a it's a union monster, uh. man. But yeah, so like yeah, this movie doesn't concern itself with decompression at all. Nope. It's just like decompress. What? No, nope, never mind. <laughs> just get them up to the surface, and they get up to the surface, and then. Ernie Hudson sacrifices himself so that they can get away yeah. to the two helicopters that are out there for no reason. Yep. Yeah. So the last death in this movie is Jones, is Ernie Hudson's character. So in this movie, the last person who dies instead of the first is a person of color. And you just have that sequence where I wish you had cut back to the base where the monster is sitting there going, Okay, well, okay, three people got away, but I, you know, for my first horror movie, I think I did all right for myself. But before I, before I punch out, let me, let me just check the checklist to make sure I got everything. <laughs> oh my god! I forgot to kill the black guy! <laughs> the very first thing on the list! <laughs> oh my god! And then he just fucking rockets out of this base, just zoomed oh. to the surface. Oh my god. And then he gets, and he pops up in front of Willie, you know, the British character, and she's screaming, and he's not coming for her. He's just gonna pick her up and put her, say, out of the way, white lady! <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to think after watching this, the Deep Blue Sea just corrected an injustice at the end yes. of Yes. <laughs> because it's the exact same scenario. Yeah, it's and and it's just the British lady's like, ah, it's my turn. Yep. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it's terrible. And then and then you get Peter Weller throwing the grenade that he got somehow in its mouth and saying, "Say, say ah, oh, motherfucker." Yep. <laughs> and then again, the, Jaws reference. Yep, another. Yep, yep. yep. Everything's Jaws. And then Everything. the hel- the helicopters, which shouldn't have been there because they were already reported dead. Yep. Pick them up. Go back to this oil rig because they're oil rig helicopters. Yep. And then they and, get oh, off. Look, they, the executive they, is there. But they also had a change of clothes on the helicopter for them. Yep. So they give them the change of. None you know, of this makes sense. They get off the helicopter. These survivors from this monster infested thing, and there's, and there's nobody there to greet them. They walk down a bunch of stairs, and finally the investigator, come, you know, who reported them dead, and cut them off. Said, "Oh yeah, it's great." And he punch, you know, how do you feel? And he punches her and says, "Better or something?" I forget. Better yeah, is the line. And they walk off into the sunset, which is of course the edge of the platform. So they just, I picture them walking straight, <laughs> tumbling right back into the water. The monster, which they blew up and has reconstituted itself, just long, <laughs> you know. And that's the, how the movie actually ends. They just, you know, ran long. Uh, two small script notes regarding the ending. One is regarding Ernie Hudson's death. His death makes slightly more sense in the script. In the script, it establishes that he's been cut 
And when they get to the surface and they're surrounded by the sharks, he starts to monster out. Like it gets oh, to. Oh, I forgot the sharks. Yeah. Oh, the sharks is my favorite bit when they're like, oh, thank we're God. Safe. Thank right. God we're sharks. Safe. Sharks! <laughs> and it's literally, it's a smash cut to sharks underwater. And it's absolutely hilarious. It's like, seriously? One of them says, oh, we're really having a bad day or something. <laughs> yeah. So this is. The script bit has Jones like he's he's coming at the sharks where he says, all right, I've had enough of this shit. You want meat, motherfucker? Come on. And says he pushes away from the group despite Beck's attempt to stop him. Jones taunting sharks. What's wrong? You snout those bastards. My meat too tough for you. And they say, whoa, did you see those fools run? They know who's boss. And it says, as Jones shouts triumphantly, we suddenly see his wetsuit ripping along his thighs. And it shows the suit starts to rip off and he's starting to monster out a bit. So that makes a little bit more sense. Although in reading it, I was like, is he just going to monster out to go after these sharks? Because that would be amazing. It's like, <laughs> you want teeth? I'll show you teeth. <laughs> <laughs> he's now a superhero. So they cut all that instead of him like being half monster when, when Bopak comes up to the surface and attacks him. But instead, in the finished film, it basically looks like he just passes out. Like, we don't see the monster strike him. It's just Ernie Hudson just loses the will to live and just kind of goes under. So it's absolute nonsense. And then the actual ending in the script, it goes on slightly further with this awfully schlocky ending where the uh, the head of the station, not Martin, but the, the captain of the station says, we prepared food for you now that we found you. And it's this spread of seafood and stuff. And they're like, how about some hamburgers? Ha 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 ha. So, which is a callback. There's a line about hamburgers earlier in the film. Oh, one other thing I forgot to mention, it was the Pepsi product placement throughout this movie. Yeah, I kept thinking, every time you saw a can of Pepsi, I'm like, if they had all this Pepsi money, they could have done better. Should have. You know, why couldn't this movie look like The Abyss instead of Abysmal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I thought of that because there's a sequence in the script, as far as banner between the characters, where they go, in the script it's a Coke machine, so Pepsi ended up getting the, the deal, I guess. Yep. And Jones starts pulling out cans of Coke and throwing at people, and he says, Jones, he says, hey, Hazy, we got a day off tomorrow, Kimasabi. Let's get shit-faced. And he throws a can to DeJesus, says DeJesus catches the can and pops the top, sending a shower of carbonation all over Cobb and under the sun lamp. Jones, how about you, Brother Cobb, little wild turkey? Cobb wipes the Coke from his sunglasses and shakes his head. DeJesus, no, man, Cobb's is a Shavas drinker from way back. Ain't that right, Cobby? And Cobb, you guys are crazy. What the hell you play this stupid game for? DeJesus, what game, Cobb? I'm on my way to Nirvana. So it's this running joke they have where they're they're drinking Coke soda and pretending it. to be alcoholic. And right. then the next day they pretend to have hangovers. Yeah. So it's this small segment in the script, which isn't particularly funny, but it amused me reading it because you know that they sent this to Pepsi and they got a note back that said, if the crew of the ship had access to the delicious taste of Pepsi, they would have no need for alcoholic substances <laughs> to fantasize about Please remove the scene immediately. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, we got to drop the scene. And it's like... I guess it kind of makes sense if you think about it. So Abyss was easily the best of these movies that came out. In, you know, yeah, yeah. in, in 1989. Yeah, 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 yes. of, of these three movies. So you figure if there was going to be a product placement in Abyss, it'd be Coke. And Leviathan, you know, clearly is Pepsi. The, the Pepsi so so Deep Star 6 is out there with like Dr. Schnee or Tab, you know, tab or something. <laughs> I said 1989, so yeah, it would be Tab. <laughs> you know, is their sponsored soft drink. It's just... Maybe that's why I'm so mad at uh, Leviathan. You know, the tab is just a different drink, whereas, you know, Pepsi is just you know, an insult. To <laughs> <laughs> we can take this out if Pepsi wants to sponsor us. We are open to sponsorship from any soft drink company. Also, any liquor store company. Whatever. Look, if you want to give us money, we, we will pimp the hell out of your product. Just no stamps.com. <laughs> I'm kidding, stamps.com. <laughs> We love you, Stamps.com. 
We love stairs. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's terrible, but you know what's not terrible? Postage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I still enjoyed the movie to a degree. I like Deep Star 6 more. I just thought it was more fun as a lead. I found the sexy dad from My Two Dads more believable than RoboCop. <laughs> just because RoboCop, played, he, he, he was just so not there. Like, he just didn't do anything interesting. Everybody around him was more interesting, but I, I don't want to say that Deep Star 6 was a better movie. I just enjoyed it more because it, it's focused more on the character to a degree and the situation in a way that was somehow just kind of less annoying than Leviathan. I mean, specifically, compared to Leviathan, Deep Star 6 is the tighter film, which is hard to say because it's Deep Star 6. <laughs> Your tighter is the word I'd use. <laughs> Just, I found it more enjoyable. There's not a huge gulf between them for me. I do enjoy watching Leviathan more just for the technical elements of it. I mean, they had more than double the budget, so obviously yep. it's more polished, but it's the sets are, are better, the suits are, are nice. Visually, it's just Visu nicer. The, the color palette with the cinematography is really good. Yeah. I mean, Deep Star 6 had a good DP, too. It was um, Mac Alberg, who's the DP for like all the old Stuart Gordon stuff. So they had good people, too. But it was the golf and quality between them was so narrow that it was like, all right, I just enjoy kind of the more polished elements of Leviathan more. But it's not I great concur. by any stretch. I concur. I, I enjoyed Ernie Hudson more than anybody in any of these films. So mm. there's that. Even I, Snyder? Even Miguel Ferrer? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. It's close. But it's those were those were my two favorites. He's a little too over the top. He's, he's almost cartoonish. You know, it's it's like them and Famke Jansen in uh, Deep Rising. But of all of them, I, I mean, I guess this leads us into the last movie and the, the impetus for this podcast, which is Underwater, which I would go so far as to say is easily, easily the best of the movies we're going to talk about today. I knew the first time I saw the trailer, I was like, I am so sold for this. I have a strong gut feeling that this is going to hit all my buttons, and it did not disappoint. Yeah, this was the impetus for us putting together this episode. So for the previous movies that we did, obviously we were spoiler-tastic on those. Those movies have been out for a while. So now we're getting into one. As of this recording, it's still in theaters, but probably won't be for much longer by the time this comes out. Knowing the quick turnaround on stuff, it'll probably be coming to home video again soon. So since we're dealing with something more recent, here's a secondary spoiler warning just for anyone. So before we get into that, real quick, I think it's safe to say we would all recommend this. Yes, okay. absolutely. Yep, Two thumbs up, big fan. Yeah. So if you're interested at all in any of the movies we talked about so far, particularly Leviathan and Deep Star Six, if you enjoyed those movies for any way, in any way, please check this out when it comes out on home video if you haven't seen it already. So just want to throw Agreed. that out there before we get into the plot details, because this is a movie that I think is definitely underrecognized. And, and we're going to have to talk about the end. Yes. So, yeah, so we're yeah, going to be spoiler alert. Decided spoiler alert. So yeah. watch it first, then come back. To be fair, we're recording this in January. It'll be a while before this pod actually comes out. So. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it might be on Blu-ray by the time yeah, we, it might we put be. this it's, out. So. It's, it's almost a distant memory now. Now, you, you mentioned seeing the trailer and thinking it was going to push all your buttons. I saw the trailer and said, sure, I'd see that. I like underwater films, but there was nothing in it that made me excited to see it, I guess. They show, they show a monster in the trailer which made me more likely to see it than just a sort of, you know, underwater thriller. Because I like monster movies. And I like Kristen Stewart. I think she's an underrated actress. She is. Surprisingly. I mean, because I, you know, look, I've seen the Twilight movies too. I understand. You only work with so much. But she's actually good. And, like, she was in Adventureland. And everybody in, in Adventureland will eternally get a pass for me in anything they're in. It doesn't matter if they're movie. good, bad, or indifferent. 
It's an incredible movie, and she's, you know, good in it. Yeah, and she's had a hell of a career in French movies recently with Clouds of Silmaria and Personal Shopper, which we haven't seen yet, but has a good reputation. Yeah. Clouds of Silmaria is terrific. So both she and Robert Pattinson have kind of done that, reestablished their cred tour mm-hmm. after the Twilight films, and they've both done a phenomenal job at it with the yeah. choices they've made. Agreed. And so she, th- this movie starts with her. It starts in... Uh, brushing her teeth. She's brushing her teeth, and she sees... Daddy Long Legs somehow, and she's clearly on this underwater. I think it starts with an underwater crawl. I can't remember exactly. Uh, it starts with a text crawl, yeah, and we kind of follow the camera follows along this. Uh, oh, that's right, the, the tube down. Yeah, so we're in we're like in an underwater station again, down? something like that. Yeah, yeah. and it's Kepler eight two two is the first station that we're in. It's yeah. like it's the deepest undersea mining operation. Yeah, existence. again, run by another big corporation. In this case, it's Tian Industries. Yep. Does it say what they're mining? No, that as far as I remember, doesn't say in the film. And there's an interview with William Eubank, the director, in which he says he has hypothesizes that again, this is set like in the rare earth nearest materials. future, yeah. so they must be mining for something, you know, rare earth or fuel based or something like that. Some, but yeah, they didn't but not get into oil. detail about that. It's not oil. He specifically said not oil. It's funny because Leviathan isn't oil either. There, it's minerals. Specifically, they mentioned silver. silver. So it's this pan down, and she saves this spider, and she's brushing her teeth, and she's got a you know pixie cut or not pixie cut. She's got a head shave. And she looks very haunted, and the lighting is implied that she's haunted. You know, one of the recurring themes in all of these movies is that these people on these underwater rigs and these distant things are kind of shells of people or messed up people who There's are There's a reason that they've come yeah. to the, the farthest reaches of the ocean. And some water happens, and then there's an alarm, and she has to start running. And this is probably a spoiler. She does not stop running until credits run. Yep. Yeah, it's... It, Get started from the word go. And like she just stand. I really love that one scene in the hallway where she's standing there, and she sees the drops of water, and then down the hall the walls just start caving in. Is oh my god! Once bad shit starts happening in this, it happens right away, and it doesn't stop. Like this is a very very kinetic movie. When you compare it to the other one, even even uh, Deep Rising doesn't i mean it starts with a moving boat but it doesn't give you quite the the oomph that nope. this one does and the other ones are all just you know people hanging around in in weird alien looking rooms you know drinking pepsi <laughs> so they, they take forever to get to their points but this one is just like let's go yeah and nick pegged it when we saw it in theaters initially where he said this feels very much structurally like a video game 100 percent. Um, and yeah. not saying that in a bad way no not it's, at all it's very propulsive once it starts moving mm-hmm. it keeps moving like from um, the very beginning they, they lay out the map of the location you understand what your boundaries are, where you can go to. There's a clear kind of progression that's going to be going in place. Mm-hmm. You're going to have obstacle after obstacle, goal after goal. You're going to come across characters who are going to help you, but the main, but you're really still following the main protagonist. It would translate to a video game with minimal effort. Yeah, mentioned coming out of this, it was like, I guess William Eubank was bummed he didn't get the Dead Space job. And then he mentions <sighs> Dead Space in an interview, yeah. too. So it's like, hey, I did this. This could easily be an early template for what you could do with a Dead Space movie. Oh, oh, I want that so bad. Yeah, and not only is it structurally very propulsive in terms of how it moves from set piece to set piece, but it really hooked me with the first one. Just the amount of visual polish in this and how kinetic the shots are from that Mm -hmm. sequence Jake mentioned when the walls are starting to collapse and Chris and Sewage running through it. There's so much energy just put into, you know, how they shoot her sliding across and the way it's cut together. Just the amount of technical polish put on this is really impressive. And in an interview... Eubank mentioned that part of how this came about was he said, I was talking to Universal about trying to get my hat in the arena to do Fast and Furious. And it's like, please give him a Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> Just given the, the energy that this movie had, he would do a phenomenal job at it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't seen any of the Fast and Furious movies. The movie that it, wrote, <laughs> that it most made me think of was Run from way back, just because it's it's just this constant movement for survival. But I could see, you know, this guy, I don't normally like action movies. I don't dislike them for the most part, but I'm just not super interested in them. This this was an action film, an action horror kind of film, and I was riveted the whole way through. And I like that how it starts, and it she starts gathering companions as she goes, and it's a little while before any of them die. Like the Short first, of the first eruption, yeah, yeah. So they come across a few bodies. Yeah, they come across bodies, and it varies the kind of scares you're getting in yes. this. So like, there's a lot of you know, there's tension. You know, they're gonna make it. They're gonna get this door closed in time. And then she has to crawl through these really narrow spaces, which I do uh, not enjoy. It, it brought me right back to the descent with that one yeah. chimney uh, tunnel they had to crawl through. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> uh, oh. And then we meet the various members of the crew who survived, and they have to get from point A to B to C. And like a lot of the other movies we talked about, where a lot of this is how well they do with the casting of this and getting that group dynamic to work, because there's this is not a character intensive movie, or at least in, in terms of characters talking about their feelings and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So you have to compensate a lot for that in the casting. And this movie does very well at that. You have Kristen Stewart in the lead, Vincent Cassell as the chief or the captain who's still alive after this, Jessica Henwick and John Gallagher. So you've got good, solid supporting actors in this who, who make up a lot of ground. It's and, also and got T.J. Miller, right. which is kind of problematic. Yeah. The shooting took place back in the spring of 2017. So he was in it before everything happened. Yeah. So, But that's still something that you got to take in mind. You know, if he's somebody that you want to watch. We're not, we're not going to get too much into that on the, the podcast by any shape, but he's in it, and that's that's a consideration. Yep, it's a fair warning. He plays the comic relief in it, of course. The movie was delayed for almost three years due to the Disney purchase of 20th Century Fox. Is that what it was? Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is actually going to be uh, the last film ever for 20th Century Fox, because they're going to be stopped using the branding. No, they're just going to be yeah, 20th Century Films as the yeah. branding going forward. They're, they're dropping the Fox bit. So this is technically the last Fox film. Huh. Yep. And I was frustrated watching this movie because movies that get dumped in January sometimes have a bit of a stigma that January is kind of a dumping ground. It's not always true, but it's definitely true with some genre pictures, which the studio doesn't know what to do with. And if they don't think it's particularly good, they dump it. And I was really frustrated watching Underwater because within the first 10, 15 minutes, it's like there's way too much work put into this on it both a technical solid. and performance level. I was like, this should not have been dumped. And And in reading on it, it was less that it was dumped and more so that it was just incredibly bad timing yep. and a long post-production process. But according to the to William Eubank, the director, Disney liked it, which is why it got released at all. Mm -hmm. And I guess I, I tried to avoid the trailers for this, but I guess it got a, a decent marketing push. So, yeah, I, I do hope more folks check it out on video because it, I think it deserves to make more money than it did. Yeah, it's it's just an entertaining film all the way through. Kristen Stewart gives a good performance. It's not a very nuanced performance. But she's she's definitely entertaining to watch. Like she mm -hmm. she holds your attention. She plays well with all the other characters. She's got that thousand yard stare, which works well for this kind of film. Yes, yeah. like she's a good horror actress, and she was legitimately terrified of being underwater. Apparently, really, yeah. Apparently, the first meeting she had with the director, she said, "Look, I'm terrified of being underwater. So just put a camera inside my suit, and you're going to get a legitimate reaction." So that feeds very impressive. well into her performance. Huh. I mean, it, it does. She, she, I was really just impressed with how well she did with this. 
because again, it's it's really just a very kinetic film. It, it never really stops to establish anything. You get some interaction with the characters, and some die, and some live, and this and that. But it's hard for you know an actor actress to keep you more interested in the people in that situation. You know, your mind tends to drift to the action itself, and you stop caring. I never really stopped caring about her in this. Like she was, she was interesting the whole way through with very little to do. And I, I think that's a good sign. It's the level of performance. I mean, again, you're not getting any Oscar nominations out of this. It still is what it is, but it's, it's an impressive performance to keep your attention in a movie with this much going on everywhere around her to keep you interested in that character. I, I was impressed. It was good. She's quite good in it. The actor I want to give special recognition to is Jessica Henwick who plays, our character's name is Emily Haversham. She has the the role, which is basically the Veronica Cartwright role from the original Alien. The character's name was Lambert, the character who, when shit goes bad, they basically spend the back half of the movie freaking out. Yep. And yeah. she has that role, which is she spends most of this movie on the verge of basically falling apart and trying to just yep. keep shit together, which can kind of be a thankless part and can kind of also easily become tedious to watch as a viewer. I think she does a, she's a tremendous actor in general, but I think she does a really good job at... She's just at, splendid at it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's very fun to watch during it. She's very relatable. So yeah, special props to her in that one. I was pretty amused that John Gallagher spent most of the movie unconscious. <laughs> getting dragged <laughs> getting around. Dragged along the ocean floor. So, yeah, there's this one scene where like they, they, okay, so the first thing they have to do to try to survive this, they're trying to get to the, uh, the Robux station. Robux station. So they're going to take, the plan is to take the cargo elevator down to the surface because their main command center is not actually on the ground level yet. So they're going to take the elevator down to the ocean floor, then follow the connecting line to the first mid station, Mm -hmm. and then actually cross the plateau to get to Roebuck Station because they only have so much oxygen in their suits. And this is all because they don't know what's going on. The, The station started kind of collapsing like something hit it. The best they can theorize is there was an earthquake. Yeah. Initially theorizing it's an earthquake. And then the, the reactor that runs the whole thing is, is going to rupture. And that's why they have to get out of there, at least as far as they know. Yeah, and all the escape pods in their station have either been used or are damaged. So they're the last, and they're not going to make it unless they leave this section. So yeah, they get in the elevator, and once they get on the elevator, that's when you start seeing that this isn't something else. There's something not just a natural disaster going on here yeah they find an escape pod i believe which has some unnatural outcroppings on it they found an escape pod stuck in the landing they go to investigate it just in case someone's alive there they find the body and on the body is what i believe they referred to as a clinger Mm. small almost looks like a like an octopus but not so much like it's got a smaller head yeah, it looked really pseudo chestburstery. Yeah, yeah, thereby cementing the alien reference in every single review of this film. <laughs> exactly, and the only one I can think of, really. <laughs> but yeah, and it is it's it's a gooey little unnerving little guy. But then they keep having these other things where they look up at the at the hatch and there's a mass of tentacles. So there are larger things like this out there, and then you keep getting these hints of something almost humanoid at times. Like it's always backlit. And it always moves as soon as the light comes on. You know, there are other things out there. You see it in the background of a few shots, yes, too, which yes. is cool. Yeah, they take their time introducing the monsters, which is, is interesting. Because it's it's not human error in this one, but they're fighting. Eventually, they find themselves trying to escape both the monsters and this disaster that's happening to their station. So, like, really, all odds are against them. Limited resources, limited options. 
things actively trying to eat them. Yeah, it to some degree takes the best of the movies we've already discussed. Yes. Filters them down to their essence and then just decides to to do that. Yep. Like these are what really worked in all of these other films, so we're just gonna we're just gonna use that. And it, it really worked well. And I, it's funny because the director hadn't seen Deep Star Six or Leviathan. He mentions in this interview, he says, you know, what's funny is I'm going to be totally honest here. I hadn't seen Leviathan or Deep Star Six. I'm a fan, but I guess I haven't done all my research and just say because everyone keeps saying, like, this is just like Deep Star Six or this is just like Leviathan. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I've never seen those movies. <laughs> now I hear them all the time because people keep mentioning them. Some people say just we can't make more underwater movies or something. Just because there's a fistful of dollars, it's not like you can't make more Westerns. So I just feel like there's not enough underwater movies. So let's get more of them out there. Nice. So, yeah, nice. it's kind of funny that he hadn't had that reference. But I had watched both Deep Star and Leviathan in the days before going to see this. So it was, it was really interesting going from those right into this. And again, seeing this is in some ways, it was like, oh, this feels like some of those movies perfected on some levels. Yeah, absolutely. It really does. Like I said, it takes the best parts of those and makes that the movie. And it doesn't waste time on a lot of unnecessary stuff. I mean, I, I liked in Deep Star 6 and Leviathan, the character bits and the, the development of it. But this is not that movie. It's not alien. It's a whole other thing, and it mm -hmm. treats itself as such, and it just it works. And I like the way the the terror and the the dangers and the issues sort of ramp up, and the way that they come up with solutions. There's you know a few slow bits. There's a couple of bits that don't necessarily make sense when they she ends up on this other abandoned rig, but all of the captain's personal belongings are there for oh, some he, reason. He was working there beforehand. Yeah, but it was abandoned, but it wasn't, like, abandoned in a rush or anything, they imply. No. So, you know, he left his coat there and picture of his daughter. If I recall, didn't they have some news articles in the opening credits saying there were some previous problems that they were alluding to? Maybe they did abandon it. I'm just saying the guy's taking the picture of his daughter. Uh, no. <laughs> it was a little goofy that he, that they didn't grab anything, that's all. My point is there's a lot of allusion to something did actually go wrong with that site. Oh, yeah. That, and that they had to evacuate quickly. And couldn't get their stuff. Yeah, um, the the theme of companies covering up for these disasters is absolutely present in this film. If I remember correctly, in the interview with the director, he made allusion to the fact that while the big problem at the end of this film wasn't happening at the at the small station, that there were actually like sanity effects going on at the station. Did he? I might yeah. I missed that. Yeah. yeah. yeah like it, like they were actually they'd started to tap into something that was actually affecting the crew and they all had to evacuate. Because they were starting to go crazy. Wow. So there's a whole other story going on with that substation they don't address. Right. And they just allude to it. And that they also are alluding to the fact that that's why the captain is kind of starry-eyed sometimes. Mm. And kind of off. Because he's still kind of recovering from what happened there. Yeah. There's a whole other story. Yeah, which would line up with him forgetting like how old his daughter is. This yes. is the one sequence where he comments on how old she is. And Kristen Stewart says, no, she did. if I'm right, she'd be my age. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that lines up. Well, I don't think he forgot it. He just didn't want to tell her she was dead. Because the picture he finds in the uh, she finds in the jacket is a funeral card. Oh, is it? Yes, it's a funeral card from As her she's funeral. That age. This is the part where I went to the bathroom. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So the, <laughs> the so, this came up. <laughs> the, the daughter was fourteen and she when died, she and so when she says she would be my age after he called her fourteen, that's okay. That's yeah, what yeah, that's. Yeah, what, yeah. When I was coming back in the theater, it was when she was stuck in the card back in. So it was, I just assumed it was a pick of the daughter. Yeah. No, it's a funeral card. Well, now I'm sad. <laughs> Could you just <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, you just go crazy. I was crazy. sitting there thinking, man, we got a couple people who survived this movie, and Vince Excel, he doesn't make up, but man, his daughter's alive and happy somewhere. <laughs> and 
Nope. Nope. Sorry. Man. Well, but it, it kind of tracks with that. You know, he's down there because, you know, his, his daughter died. She's down there because her fiance disappeared. You know, and that's why they focus so hard on getting the couple out of there. They're, mm. they, they're running from their lives above. They need to make them live their lives. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the couple, of the, the young people trying to start their lives together. Yeah. And in all three movies, it's the couple that make it out. Yeah. Yep. This deep star in Leviathan. It's a standard trope. Yeah. yeah. You know, you talk about the, the director and the backstory, and he talked a lot about the backstory and that he at least developed in his own head. Maybe yes. It may just be headcanon, but I would love to see those movies. Yes. Because, all right, so, the, so same, do we same. want to talk about the end? Oh, yes. All right. So the way this ends, you see all these, you know, these, these they're kind of like mermaid-ish. They're humanoid. One of them almost swallows somebody whole, like they they have an. And that is member, one of the more which is a cool shocked scene. scene. Cause, yeah, they they got these large mouths, which I was fine with, and then it like latches onto her head, and she's, she doesn't quite fit at first, and then like its whole like mouth and gullet just like expand, and it's trying to swallow her whole. I was like, yeah. "Whoa, this is really <laughs> cool and well done." I was yeah. not expecting that. Yeah, it was a it really made me very happy, really yeah. neat design. So, so towards the end of the film, they're trying to get to this place they're going that has the escape pods left. You know, they have to do this underwater walk where they, and they do a good, it's a really effective scene where they're walking on the, the ocean floor yes. and it's dark. It's not like well lit no. like in the other can, movies we watched. You can only see where you're looking because that's where your flashlights are pointing. And by that point in the film, it's when they're not following the path of the connection because they don't have enough air. They're literally crossing the plateau. Yeah, so they're they following the, the red lights. There's some red markers for emergency walking. Which is kind of like what they do in Antarctica, so you know yeah. you're on the right path. Yeah, but it's... they're not bright markers. They're just obvious markers. Yeah. So you can't see anything around you. And, there's, and it's, it's made worse by the fact that the whole place is clearly littered with old mining project equipment. Like the idea of, okay, we're done with this. We're just going to drop it. Or, you know, in some cases, I believe the director referenced in the interview, he's like, it's the way, some of the ways they built these places where they just took the equipment, tossed it off a ship, let it sink to the bottom, and then yeah. they go down and put it together. And obviously, you're going to sometimes when pieces get lost to that. Yeah. So the place is just littered with mining equipment debris, and, yeah. and debris. Yeah. Not necessarily from the uh, earthquake and explosion. Visually, it's really cool looking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and this, this is after they know these monsters are there and they've, they've said, you know, we dug too deep and, there was something down there where humans weren't meant to be Whenever here. unleashed, yeah. You know, they kind of, you know, very cryptic minds of Moria sort of speak. So anyway, so they're going through, and they see this field of these monsters just hanging around, just floating. They they are specifically, so they're, they're at the station that they want to get into, and they, they flat out say, the door is right there. They're just like, and there's this, like, dangling sea of arms hanging from this roof right. they need to walk under, mm. and it's just these things just kind of, like, hibernating, chilling just on this out. rooftop. And they have to try to get past the arms without disturbing anything. Yeah, it kind of looks it's like really a car wash. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it does. But like car wash of death. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they so they walk through them, and th this is where the one drops down, and it sees Kristen Stewart and tries yep. to swallow her whole, and the, the the other lady gets past. And then as she's going, you kind of realize that they're hanging on something else. It's not a roof. It's not you a roof. You thought it was a roof. It is not a roof. It is a giant fucking monster. <laughs> this this movie gave me everything I wanted. <laughs> because they give you all this, you know, we dug too far, dug too deep, and all these illusions, and, you know, there's these things, there's the baby one they find, and these medium-sized, and then they see this huge, 
monster. Gargantuan. That clearly they woke up. So they get into this thing. And your first thought when you see this is like, that looks kind of like Cthulhu. <laughs> so they go in and stuff happens and this giant monster attacks and they escape. You know, these, these escape hatches go up for the couple and Kristen Stewart has to stay behind. They don't have enough pods. And nuke the thing. And, you know, this giant monster's coming at her, and then you see the scene where you're just looking in her eyes. And and she know. notices, so just to step back one yeah. one bit, it is literally covered, like, all the things they've been dealing with, yeah. it is covered by them. Yeah. Like, like yeah. almost like remores, you know, just like that they are living Barnacles off of, and something. Yeah, yeah, they are living off of its remnants when it doesn't eat and such, you know, or, or serving it. And clearly, it notices the escape pods going, and you just see a small swarm of these things just come off of it and start swimming up towards the surface and yeah. the radar shows that it is faster than the pods it is going to overtake them yeah so she basically blows it up she causes the reactor to over or overload tries to blow it up but as as the director says in an interview it is cthulhu it is actually cthulhu apparently mm-hmm. while it's hard to see through most of the scenes at the end when the explosion happens mm-hmm. it's trying to crawl you can see its, it's wings, wings. Yeah, originally it was a different sort of monster during production. It was like a giant in, whale. Yep. Yeah. And then in post, apparently the director is good friends with Andy Muschietti, who did Mama and It, and they were talking about punching up the film and tightening it up. He's like, I think you need something scarier in there. And at some point they decided, fuck it, let's do Cthulhu. And the thing is, it's not just a big monster that looks like Cthulhu. It's Cthulhu. It is an actual <laughs> god covered in deep ones. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, like I, I have written in my notes that I, I went and got, grabbed lunch right after we saw this because I couldn't take notes in the theater. And I have this written down as prequel to Pacific Rim. <laughs> uh, which it, it certainly could have been. Yes. And then you find out it's Cthulhu and I'm like, no, I want that movie. Yep. <laughs> Do that movie because it's an awesome looking giant monster. It's fantastic. They and really did not skimp on the production. And it's you. such a payoff to this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's because like the end of Deep Rising. Yes. You know, you get this giant squid thing and it's pretty cool but you know it's I liked coming. it. You know, I, I dug it. You know, I'm glad it's like, I was like, happy. It's like, you're a giant monster with this it one. It made me very happy. This one I was like, yes! <laughs> there is the giantest of giant monsters. Yes! <laughs> and, you know, we were making jokes that it was Cthulhu coming out of the theater and it's just, it was so cool. It was great. And it, it really, it's this movie gave me everything I wanted. Good action, scary moments, deep underwater, vague, intention. vague underwater technology. You know, <laughs> they, they do a good job with the way they do the underwater scenes. Mm-hmm. And then a giant fucking monster at the end. <laughs> and I, did, I felt they did a really good job with the chemistry between the, the technicians as well. Like, they were always constantly on the run, but it didn't stop them from, like, you could see the relationships between these people. It was very yeah. clear that they'd been working together for a while. They were close. They were had each other's backs. I loved it. I loved everything about it. You know, and it's and it's the rare movie where I really liked it in theaters, and then I saw like an interview after. And a lot of time, the interviews after make me more interested in the film, but they don't necessarily make me like it more. Right. Where this made me like everything that happened more. Yep. Especially because in the interview, is it's a video thing on YouTube. He holds up a copy of the collected Lovecraft. Yep. He's like, mm-hmm. no, it's Cthulhu, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just awesome. We love you, William Bank. <laughs> so happy yeah and, and the guy clearly had a real passion for this this wasn't just a job he wanted mm-hmm. to make this movie and he made the movie he wanted to yep. make and he did a great and job of it it turns out he made the movie i wanted him to make too <laughs> uh, the only thing i would have liked more would have been instead of um like news footage saying you know implying that the company knew something was there i i would have liked maybe a scene where you kind of saw the people going mad or something like that's that. That's the main thing I would have, like, when we saw it the first time, I didn't groove on the end text, where before we go into the end credits, where it has the bit about how the, the company covered it up, 
and whatever. It was like, I don't know if we, it parallels stuff at the opening. Yes, but the book ends. But it was like, I don't know if we needed that. And then when I found out the bit about it being Cthulhu, I was like, oh, we definitely didn't need it because I like to think that just shit went to shit. After <laughs> yep. So, so that little bit of it I would trim. Yeah, but every everything else I like. It's just it's just a phenomenal movie. Easily the best of the ones we watched for this podcast. Yes. Yeah, it's for me. It's and I've talked a lot about varying levels of polish on this, but this one, this movie, it looks good both in terms of how it's shot. And the design elements of it, the suits look good, the monsters look good, and it also sounds good. Yep. The sound design yep. is terrific, and it has a really good score by Marco Beltrami and Brandon Roberts. It has kind of an electronica score on this, which is very propulsive. Yeah, it's just one of those, on every technical level, it's like I just really grooved on it early and was always entertained. Yeah, and it's the rare movie where I cared more about a stuffed rabbit than most of the characters, but I still <laughs> cared about the characters. Rabbit. <laughs> the, rabbit, the rabbit makes it out. Yeah, I know. The rabbit makes it out. Spoiler. <laughs> but Vincent Cassell's daughter doesn't. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're here for you. <laughs> I just assumed you conferred while I was in the restroom and said, he doesn't need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Let him live in his dream world. While we can lie to you, we cannot lie to our fans. <laughs> I, t- I, I tell you what, I'll feel bad about that if you can tell me Vincent Cassell's character's name. Without looking at your notes. Oh, shit. All right, <laughs> <laughs> All right I'm not sad anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I do like Vincent Cassell quite a bit as yes. an actor, Yeah, he was so good. I was yes. glad to see him show up in this movie. And I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I liked, I liked everybody in it. I even liked T.J. Miller's performance, which made me feel icky, but yeah. he was fun and funny. In the context of the film, he's, it's not even overplayed. You know, he's, he's got his one-liners a bit, but it's not. He's not stifling. comic relief. Yeah. It's yeah, not it, as, it's, as blatantly comic relief as, as Deep Rising, where yeah. like the whole film pauses every time Kevin O'Connor is about to deliver a line. Yeah. You know? And TJ Miller makes it a lot less far throughout the plot than Kevin O'Connor makes it. That's plot, true. So. Yeah. And boy, you know his end's coming. When it it's so obvious. <laughs> like, I'm just like, okay, they're, they're queuing up. Who's last in queue? Oh. You're screwed, buddy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that comes to a lot. So a lot of the reviews for this, and I haven't read a lot of reviews and details, but just in some of the headlines I saw on Twitter and stuff going into this, where a lot of people thought of it as derivative and boring in some respects. And one thing is, derivative to me does not always necessarily equal boring. No. And yeah, there's a, you can pretty much predict all the plot points this hits. Mm-hmm. But again, if it's well performed and if it's kinetically put together, it's still then it's delivers. fine. And yeah. it's yeah. And so I was pretty well engaged through this the whole film. You know, it, you know, it's structurally it's it's very by the numbers in a lot of ways, but it's it's still engaging. Agreed. Yeah, it's a fun movie that gives you a giant monster at the end. I can't stress this enough. <laughs> <laughs> can't it, go wrong. It, it's so many of these movies don't have the payoff that gets promised, and this one. Doesn't even promise you that payoff, and, and then gives, gives it, it to you. It's just bonus. Like, yeah. do you, I don't know what you're coming here for, but here, have this beautiful thing. <laughs> you know, and until <laughs> until they, once his face makes uh, his mountains of madness, this is going to be the best Cthulhu. Well, I guess we got yeah, color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we've got color space to watch. I am very out. excited yeah. for that. But I'm willing to bet I enjoy this more than that. Yes. I, I would. I would put a lot of money on that. I've heard really good things about color space, though. Like, positive giant fucking <laughs> monster <laughs> it doesn't take much with me look Touché. i love skull island i love that the cthulhu appearance in this was the equivalent of you getting a free dessert at a restaurant <laughs> it's like they come out with a game, say, but it's not my birthday <laughs> thank you <laughs> when you go to sixers games they 
in the second half of the games, if a player on the opposing team misses two free throws, you get a free Frosty the next day at Wendy's, who we also take as a sponsor. Anyway, Sixers, Frosties, whatever. Clap your hands, everybody. <laughs> but th- th- getting to Fulu at the end of this was like getting two Frosties. Yeah. <laughs> you don't two really- Frosties up, says the Scary Stuff Podcast. <laughs> you, you always hope for it. You never expect it. You're happy when you get it. And in this one, you were double happy. It was great. It's hard to argue with. <laughs> two Frosties up. Two Way Frosties. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that's that's a bunch of wet movies. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Soggy Stuff. <laughs> so by the time this comes out hopefully underwater will be on dvd and people can go watch it uh, everything else is available you know in various states of streaming i think deep star six and leviathan are both free on prime i think i rented the bay no not one of them was on deep rising was on cinemax you know they're all they're all available but i would invest in making sure you go and see underwater if anything we said interests you, please toss underwater a couple of bucks, be it via red box. It's worth or your time. Rental something when yeah. it comes out. It's just yeah. quality. And you know, and while you're tossing things, make sure to give us a, a five star review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Uh, and leave us a review if you could. We'd love to hear from it. Unless you don't like us, uh, then don't. <laughs> we'll uh, have a separate place for that someday. Just wait. <laughs> also, you know, make sure to hopefully our book. Scary stuff will be out by the time you hear this. May not, but it'll be on the way, and that'll be available through the oddityprodigy.com website. Also, it's going to be available on Amazon. You can order from them. It'll be available at Barnes and Noble. But make sure you buy it. And if you like this podcast, you'll like that book. We have some of us are the authors in it and uh, the editors, and it's it's just good stuff. It's five worth- out of five would read again. <laughs> yeah, so make sure you do that. But how many um, Frosties would you give the Scary Stuff Anthology? Uh, at, oh, least, at least four. At least four. Yeah. Okay. Four, this yeah. is like they Dwight. Both hands, barely holding them <laughs> on. This is like when they play hack a Dwight Howard at the end of a game, and you're just, you're just piling on Frosties. <laughs> it's the whole damn Frosty machine. <laughs> just wrenching the lever down. You're like, <laughs> strapping it to your back and walking out with a cup. I'm you're, good. Let's go. You're like Barney on Simpsons. Just hook it up to my veins. <laughs> it begins. <laughs> Um, also, make sure you, you check out our sister podcast, which you can look at on the Oddity Prodigy's website or wherever you get podcasts. It's called Oddity Podigy. That's our sister podcast for our main company. Make sure to leave reviews for that as well. But yeah, buy our stuff. If you're a sponsor, sponsor our stuff. Look, we're in this for the money. We just watched... <laughs> We just watched Leviathan. It's definitely not for a labor you. of love. <laughs> Look, even if you if you leave a five star review, we'll give you an address. You can send us a couple of bucks. Man. <laughs> I don't want to do it for us. Do it for Daryl. Poor Daryl. Do it for Deep Star Daryl. So for I'm I'm Jake. This is Nick. This is Nick. Rules lawyer Leamy. <laughs> this is Eric. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening and we'll we'll see you next time. Adios. See ya. a ziggurat.